We took the name of this episode from Something in the Dirt, the movie we reviewed in our previous episode, because we'll make any reference we can do something from Rustic Films. But for this episode, we're excited to discuss a true horror classic, and we're even more delighted to do so with a very special guest. From writer Anthony Schaffer and director Robin Hardy, it's The Wicker Man, with special guest Kevin Scott on this episode of Scary Stuff. And welcome to a special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. How you doing tonight? And Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Well, hello. How's everybody doing tonight? I'm doing quite well. I'm in that weird state where, like, you know, didn't sleep very well last night. So I'm on, like, fake energy. <laughs> We're higher than something in the dirt episode levels of, <laughs> like, sleep depravity. Sorry. Right? Okay. I was sick. <laughs> I know you were. I was, I was sick. I wasn't sleep depravity. I was literally sick. No, but I'm like right now. I'm like all souped up and ready to go. But at some point, I'm gonna hit that wall, and yeah, then I'm just gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, half this episode is pre-recorded. So <laughs> hey, <laughs> oh man, yeah, I guess I'm doing all right. As you yawn, it's been been a it's been a long week, man. Yes, <laughs> it is. It has been a trying time here at the uh, scary stuff land, but. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be recording. I'm happy to talk about this this fun, goofy, weird-ass movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's our first titty musical, man. Come on. How can I not be excited <laughs> to talk about it? There is an inordinate amount of sex in this movie. Most of it on the lawn. You know, I, I wonder a lot of times with us covering movies that are such well-tread ground where, it's, you know, the pressure's on. is like, are we really going to say anything that hasn't been said? But I'm pretty sure Jake just introduced the movie in a way that probably no other podcast has introduced the Wicker Man. So, yeah, well, we're good. We're, we're already adding to the conversation, clearly. You said musical titties, right? Titty musical. I, I immediately reversed it, went to, like, uh, musical titties. And just had this image of, like, you know, topless people around in a circle. The music's playing. It stops. <laughs> well, that, that's the scene right before he gets to Lord Summerisle's castle is basically what you just described. Exactly. So before we completely sink the <laughs> the commercial tie-in implications of our special guest, who was kind enough to join us for this episode, let's get right to it because we have a phenomenal guest who is also an enormous fan of The Wicker Man. So let's take it back to the pre-recorded bit. I promise this is a fabulous discussion. So good. I am so delighted to introduce our guest for our discussion of The Wicker Man. He is the author of the horror novella Anchor's Heart. His graphic novel Sleep Terrors was just successfully kickstarted. He's the writer of many Doctor Who and Star Wars comics, including two particularly apt stories from Tales from Vader's Castle that we're probably going to talk about. <laughs> for DC, he's written Titans United and the tie-in one-shots for the newly released Black Adam. For Vault, he writes Shadow Service. And for IDW, his upcoming comic Dead Seas is coming out in December. So I'm delighted to welcome to the pod, Kevin Scott. Hello there. You're welcome. It's good to be here. It's always good to talk horror. And, and, you know, with you gentlemen, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. And not just to talk horror, but this is your favorite horror movie, right? Oh, it's my yeah, all-time favorite horror movie. I will always go back to this. And it's very, you know, there's various different versions of it as well. And I've watched them all. I mean, the original Wicker Man. We don't ever talk about the remake. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we, we sometimes point and laugh at the remake, but we never actually call it by the name Wicker Man. I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite good with remakes. I'm, you know, I have no problem usually with remakes. If you know you remake a movie, that's fine. The original is still there. 
However, there is an exception <laughs> to that rule. And, the Wicker um, Man is a unique scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's so bad. I, I had never seen either of them. I mean, you know, you're aware of the Wicker Man, but I'd never sat down and watched it. So this was my first time watching it. And I oh, thought, right, all right, okay. in prep, I'll watch the, the remake too, just so I know. <laughs> I got about half Whoops. an hour in and I'm like, how is this a real film? <laughs> just, whew. It's interesting. There's, there's an audio version of it coming soon. I don't know if it's out. It was announced last year. Brian Blessed is playing Lord Summerisle. Oh, wow. I know, which I could absolutely see work, but I don't think it's come out yet. And that I'm quite intrigued about because I'm a, I'm a big horror drama nut as well and it's where i started writing and so i can see the working man really working on audio and i've got no problem with them sort of doing something like that but yeah the um i would have no problem with the remake if it was actually a proper remake of the working man rather than what we got oh i, I mean i do love the, the edited version on youtube but someone's taken out all the mad bits and put them into like you know five seconds <laughs> <laughs> yeah. basically the entire finale where are the yeah. bees you know all that business. <laughs> how to get burned how to get burned how to get burned yeah 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 Basically, Nick Cage punching various women, which seems to be the entire film. <laughs> sometimes dressed as a bear, sometimes not. Yeah. Anyway, let's forget about that one. We've mentioned it now. It's out there. <laughs> we can burn that. I will say, if they're going to do an audio drama, they got to get Liam Cunningham for the Edward Woodward role, because those two dudes mm. sound exactly alike. Yeah. Like, exactly. Like, I, I was confused watching it, because, again, the first time I was like, is that, yeah, yeah. Is that Liam Cunningham? Is that the guy who played Davos? I mean, He'd be amazing. Because at, at the time... It, Edward Woodward over here in the UK, as you may gather from my accent, I'm British. <laughs> he, at the time, was known for playing hard men on telly. Um, there was a show called Callum. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, he went on to play The Equalizer in the 80s. That's where I know him from. He was known for playing these sort of, like, quite blue-collar worker hard men. And so it was a real, I think everyone was a bit shocked when he plays this policeman, you know, and a Scottish policeman at that, because it was completely anti-type yeah. you know, and this quite devout policeman as well. Yeah, this, I mean, this was like immediately after Callan. Like Callan ended in 72, mm. I think, or at least like the main series. So it was like right after the year before this, he was in a a movie I'm really, really fond of called Sitting Target yes. with yeah, yeah. Oliver Reed and Ian McShane, which is also a thoroughly bleak you know, mm. crime thriller. So yeah, it was definitely a bit of a shift for him. Also, he's in a, I, I watched as part of prep for this, it was years later, but he's in a, a movie called The Appointment. Uh -huh. directed by Lindsay Vickers, which is, a, I, I think it was around like 80, 81, which is yeah. another like slow burn, very slow burn horror movie that I'd heard about and finally sat down to watch for this. No, he, he's a legend. I think I, when I first saw it, I, I'd heard of The Wicker Man from like reading Starburst and things like, yeah, magazines and things. And the, every now and then there'd be a picture of Christopher Lee with mad hair waving his <laughs> it's arms. It's the greatest around. hair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's how in the pandemic I based my entire look on that that hair. Um, I just thought he was gearing up to be in Quadrophenia or something yeah, yeah. after that with, yeah, with yeah. Roger Daltrey stand in for the. It, does go, it goes crazy. Uh, like that last act, his hair. I mean, it, obviously he's had that long wig on, um, but you know, it's just it goes even more bizarre. But yeah, so I'd seen that picture, and because uh, I knew Edward Woodward from The Equalizer, which was you know always on in the eighties over here. And so, yeah, it was a real shock when I saw him in this. And I'd seen a lot of Hammer films. I'm a big Hammer horror nut because, again, I'm British, and that's what you did in the, in the 70s. You watched James <laughs> Bond, Doctor Who, and, and Hammer horror when you were far too young. And so I knew, again, it, it, I just assumed when I first watched it, it was like a Hammer horror. And it's nothing like Hamara. It's, you know, it's its own little world. In fact, a lot of its, the, its roots is from Christopher Lee wanting to play against type and yeah. make something that was like totally different from the hammer horror film yeah and anthony Schaffer wanted to do sort of an anti-hammer film essentially yeah. in terms of approach 
Yeah, I think most of Christopher Lee's career is him wanting to do something opposite to Dracula. I don't uh-huh. think he... It's quite funny. He didn't really like playing Dracula. And so it was like, mm. you know... So, yeah, this is... Obviously, for people who know, this is his passion project and has been for years. And then, you know, he was constantly trying to... Because there's this entire thing. We're, we're jumping all over the place. But there's... A, oh, yeah. The, the, no, that's how we roll here. The original negatives were lost for years, you know. And it was Corman who had them. He had a he had a print of it, so they did a reverse. They sort of did a new neg off the print, which is why if you watch the final cut or the director's cut, you know, there's a massive shift in quality because they just don't know where the negatives are, you know. And there's all these conspiracy theories that they're buried underneath a motorway in Britain, or you know, <laughs> which, which you know, again, like all conspiracy theories, nothing's that organised. It's probably they're in a cupboard somewhere, you know. They they've been lost. Um, it's not that, that anyone got rid of them because of this this dark secret it was just like you know there's someone's got a folder like leaning on top of that film reel you know so it's going to be one day someone's going to find it but yeah i know it's always every interview christopher lee gave about this film you could tell how much he loved it and why he loved it i actually read somewhere that uh christopher lee actually paid for his own press tour out of pocket he was so in love with this yeah and he hit every stop willing to interview him there was apparently a rumor going around that some farmers in iowa we're surprised to see him on live early morning public access shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And says he wasn't paid for the movie either. Said he basically did yep. the movie. No, he, he did it basically for love, I think. And, and put a lot of his money into the making of it as well. So, and that's why I think you've got people like Ingrid Pitt in it, you know, and you've got, it's again, it's the, it was the connections to him and to Hammer and, and the entire vampire Dracula Hammer thing that they were really trying to play off the back of. But yeah, so you you only just watched it then for the first time. Yeah, for me, this was my first time. I think they had both seen it before. Yes, but did you have a did you have an inkling of what the ending was? Did you know how it ended? Yeah, I did know how it ended. Right, it's hard to dodge it these days. <laughs> but I, I honestly, you know, I had an an idea of what the film was in my head, and it was, you know, based knowing in the very beginning and knowing how it ends. I was like, okay, well, I can probably have it, and I just. I was so far wrong <laughs> as to <laughs> I, I'm glad I never like to tried to describe it to somebody because what I what I wasn't expecting was you know a hippie burlesque musical somewhere yeah. between these two <laughs> kind of you know because it even starts sort of how I met you know he's flying over the Kerrang and Isla Sky and the old man of storm I'm like oh this is cool I, you know I've been there that's neat and then and it just goes bonkers from there I adored it. Yeah, I mean, it is a musical. It's a horror musical, and and yeah. I love it for that. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not it's not background music because they literally they move the plot along by singing the songs. Yes. you know, and and they're so sinister as well. I mean, you know, the yep. the first song about Willow, the you know the landlord's daughter. I mean, it's so wrong. It's so wrong in every sense. Yeah. and the fact you've got the oldest people in the bar singing it as well. It's not lusty yep. young lads. It's really, really, you know, people who should not be in public talking about that kind of thing when she's in the room with them that that scene is the the one where this movie very very sternly told me that this was not going to be what i expected it to be yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you watch the uh, did you watch the theatrical release i believe so I, I what i did i rented it streaming on amazon and then right. after i watched it that's when i read that there were you know 18 different versions and now i kind of want to hunt down the the director's cut was howie there for one or two nights i saw him for two nights I feel like it was two nights. Okay, if then yeah. two nights, that's if you the saw it on Amazon, I think the cut that's on Amazon now is is the final, final cut, cut, yeah, which is like ninety nine minutes, yeah, where he's there for two nights. Because then the theatrical cut, he's only there for one. Yep. Because when I I couldn't remember how long ago I'd seen the movie, but I I thought it was post final cut, but it must not have been 
because when I sat down to watch it for this, I said, wait a minute, since when was he there for two nights? I thought it was just one. Yeah, the first night is the the wall scene, and then the the second night is it's a little less spectacular than the first night. That's for so sure. the final cut's the other way around. So the um the final cut Willow's song is right before because that's them trying to tempt him for the last time yep. for the sacrifice. Huh. Whereas in the original theater, you know, she the original theatrical cut, she just goes for it from the off. He's just checked in, and she's like, right off it all comes. Um, I'll yep. do a song, <laughs> and he has had no. You know, he hasn't got any of the other stuff about the village. All he's had is that they've sung a really weird song at him. And then suddenly he's like, he's throwing himself at a wall. It's really, really bizarre. But sort of works. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it, when you think of it, how the, the, the director wanted it, it makes total sense that they're... What I love about this film is that you don't know how much they're putting stuff on as well just to see if they can freak him out, you know, yep. just to yep. see if they can break him. Because that's all of the film is them trying to make sure that he is the pure sacrifice. And when you realize that, it's it's incredible. And you know, and then you start seeing when you watch it back, you see how many people watch him walk by. You know, they're all looking at him mm. all the time. Everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. And that's you know, it's that classic, you know, it's like murder on the honest rest. It's the fact that they're all everyone's involved. Everyone's in, you know, behind it. And he's the only person. Even like the kids, they're all involved. They all know, yep. you know, yep. that yep. nice little girl doing a painting of her hair. You know, it's like she's, yep, she's in on it. That's what I find because it's the, it's not a horror film that's scary, scary. You know, there's no jump scares. There's not much gore. You know, there's the hand of glory is probably the nearest. Oh, and the big burning fire at the end. But um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the titular sequence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But other than that, it's just unnerving, and I think that's yep. why I yeah. love it. It's just. Everything about it is wrong. And what I think they do, it's a bit like The Shining. You know, there's so much stuff in it that makes you, you know, like the famous stuff like The Shining, the Overlook Hotel, it's not, it can't make sense geographically. And so everything's weird. And you don't realize when you first watch it, like when you first see Jack in, in that, he's, he's reading a porn mag and, and he's waiting for his interview and stuff like that. Stuff you don't notice, but then you, you're just getting this sense of the odd because your brain goes nothing's right here mm-hmm. and that's the same on Isle. you know every every shop has just the weirdest shit in the in the windows you know or just mm-hmm. and everything is just slightly off and uh that's what i love about it because there's the obvious stuff you know like the stuff in the school and you know and the ubinical cord hanging from the tree and all that kind of stuff that's weird we know that we accept it that's not what it's like in scotland <laughs> but then yeah it's when you've got the luxury of watching it back again and you know what's coming then you just start seeing how much they dressed it to just put you off ease you know it was incredible i love how true to itself it can be and get away with it like it's very organic and obvious that they're all just living their lives like they normally do but there's this veneer of civilization over top of it Mm. that you know if you were just to walk through and not look back you would never think twice about the village but it's just it permeates every level uh their belief systems and the the way they live and you stay for a day or two it's like holy shit what am i sitting in Unless you go for a walk at night and everyone's just shagging in the film. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very <laughs> memorable <line>. then. <laughs> you know. my, one of my favorite things when horror movies do is to speak to what you said is when everything is just not right enough to make you so you are never comfortable. Like yeah. Like you mentioned The Shining. It it Follows is another one. Oh, yeah. That really get, you know, like you, you can't really tell what season it is. And I think partly with this one is that 
it's supposed to be spring, but they filmed it in October. Yeah. Lends itself to that, that basic unease. Cause you can just kind of feel like this doesn't seem even the right season for what they're saying. And they flew trees in to give the visual of it being spring. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and also the, when they did the original theatrical cut and they have that thing at the beginning when they say, we like to thank the people of Summer Isle. No, yes. no, you know, Summer Isle doesn't exist. It's not even filmed on an island. That's filmed on the mainland. Mm-hmm. You know, they, obviously there's some scenes of it, you know, coming into an island, but everything else is mainland Scotland. You know, I've toured around those locations far too many times. So even that they they went so far as to say thank you to the people of Summer Isle for, for this. So it feels like a documentary and it's shot like a documentary. Yeah, There's that wonderful sequence where how he's going he's starting to really trying to find where she is and he's like just before when they're all preparing for May Day he does like the tour of all the different places you know and you get angry a bit in the bath and you get all that business but then there's a moment when it suddenly becomes documentary when everyone's just performing to the camera you get the butcher putting his hat on you know and it's just everything about it suddenly feels that you're not watching a film anymore that you're watching something that's either the fly on the wall or you know something that could have been on the BBC or ITV at the time so it sort of shifts within the film from being an obvious film to being something that's quite naturalistic as well. And it's just, yeah, there's just all those little touches. Everything throws you off. Yeah, it, it struck me watching it this time around too, realizing what you just mentioned about the documentary feel is is how it's peppered throughout like, with these POV shots. But specifically, it didn't occur to me until the, the rewatch that it's bookended by them. The, the mm. very first scene with the folks on the harbor is primarily from, like, literally from, Howie's POV. It's, it's yeah. the distance is exactly what it is. We don't get a cut to an actual close-up shot of the folks on the harbor until like three dialogue exchanges in until we get a close-up. Yeah. And then bookends for the finale where we actually have POV shots essentially from inside the Wicker Man of everyone singing around him. So it was interesting that we literally bookend the movie with his perspective of this you know, location. Yeah, no, everything's from, you know, they stay so close to, you know, we don't get many cuts away to what's going on because you can't because then it would all be blown you know so you know yeah he's in pretty much every scene and he's not the most likable character in any no. way whatsoever he's <laughs> such an asshole yeah. <laughs> well that was one of my things about it because you know it, obviously it's a horror movie but it, at the same time it's i'm watching this and i'm like I know the island people are supposed to be the villains, <laughs> but it's not who I'm rooting for in any capacity. This, no. you know, this this colonizer here. I, you know, I. I, I think he's really interesting because he is quite multifaceted as well. Because he does have moments of charm as well. You know, he does have. You know, again, when he's dealing with the kid, when they're doing the painting, he's a copper. Then you know, he, he's doing the thing. He's getting down with her. He's getting his hands dirty and all that. Literally getting his hands dirty. And he's obviously getting more and more outraged as the time goes on. And then at the end, actually, when the big, you know, the bonfire's happening, I mean, he's properly devout. He doesn't give in at all, you know, it's right to the end, yeah. he believes. Mm-hmm. He's not swearing yes. when he's shouting out, oh, Jesus Christ. He's a true martyr. Yeah. Yeah. Actually asking for salvation. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's actually calling to his Lord. And you just sort of think, I don't like you, but I appreciate that you're you really believe what you do, you know, it's mm-hmm. right to the end. Yeah. There is nothing there. I mean, you know, and he does, you know, the weirdest seduction routine in a movie, he does manage to avoid it <laughs> by having a wall between him. <laughs> but even in that, even in Willow's song, when she goes through that, and, they, and you have the crazy thing about, you know, it's a different person, obviously, from behind. 
but then she suddenly turns to the camera and sings to the audience. Yep. And it's just again, it's that weird thing. I'm like, oh god, that's weird. Yeah. You know, it's you don't know who to root for a lot of the time, but you do sort of think actually, the village is having a very nice life. Thank you very much. You know, it's just like if it wasn't for the apples not harvesting, they would just carry on and it'd be brilliant. <laughs> I just I have such an instinct to root for the weirdos. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Did anyone else watch the rest of Robin Hardy's filmography? No. Okay. Because we're lucky I had time to watch this, to be honest, and I feel <laughs> bad about that. So I hadn't seen The Wicker Tree, so I sat down and I watched that as part of prep for this. That's the spiritual sequel, right? Yeah. yeah it's it's not a, a a true. Yeah. When he says it's a spiritual successor, that's that's an apt description of it. No. There is argument made it might have been more of a sequel if Christopher Lee was able to yeah, really act in it. He he got injured beforehand. Yeah. If it would have been it based on the premise, it would have been really bizarre if it was, but that's not necessarily that much of a stretch for the point I'm about to make. In between then he made a movie called The Fantasist, which is currently available on Tubi. Right. And uh, Robin Hardy also wrote another movie which he didn't direct called The Bull Dance, Bull which Dance, is also yeah. called Forbidden Sun. That one's also on Tubi, funnily enough. And I watched all of them and Robin Hardy in, in interviews about the movie, he talks up, you know, that one of the things that folks don't appreciate about the Wicker Man or one of the, the concepts that the remake missed is that it's supposed to be funny mm. is people so often miss the humor. And if you watch Robin Hardy's other movies, it becomes quite clear <laughs> that he is head over heels for the residents of Summer Isle. He thinks <laughs> they are a laugh riot because the fantasist is basically a city populated by the residents of Summer. It's like yeah. everybody in the movie acts as if they're a resident of Summer Isle. It, even more, and that whole film has this really bizarre dreamlike quality to it. Anyone who's a completist or whatever who hasn't checked it out, I would say watch the fantasist if you're a big Wicker Man fan because it's such a thoroughly peculiar movie. Yeah, and then the Wicker Tree is obviously. Um, also unique. Yeah, I think unique's the best way of uh, <laughs> <laughs> describing. Did, did you read the description of his proposed sequel, the the Lambton Worm? That was Anthony Schaffer's proposed yeah. uh, okay, yeah. sequel. And there is, Kevin was talking about audio dramas earlier. Uh, we'll probably link to it, but somebody, there's a podcast, or folks who work on a podcast, who did an audio drama based off Schaffer's notes mm. for that script. So we'll link to it. I, I only listened to bits of it, but it was very well produced. So yeah, some, somewhere there's a full interpretation of what that script would have been i I, I want to read just a little snippet of the description of this sequel that never happened and maybe you'll mourn with me as well that this doesn't exist in in reality because i oh i do yeah (laughs) in the continuation of the story which begins immediately after ending of the first film sergeant neil howie is rescued from the burning wicker man by a group of police officers from the mainland Howie sets out to bring Lord Summer Isle and his pagan followers to justice. Just hold on, Nick, because you're, you're going to get on board with this. This feels like Commando. <laughs> but he becomes embroiled in a series of challenges which pits the old gods against his own Christian faith. Oh, my God. The script culminates in a climactic battle between Howie and a fire-breathing dragon, yep. the titular Lambton Worm, and ends with a suicidal Howie plunging to his death from a cliff tied to two large eagles. Yep. Like, I need this to exist because that would have been the greatest 80s movie of all time. Imagine, like, if, if it did exist and showing someone the first Wicker Man and being like, eh, that movie's interesting. Oh, you think that in the sequel he fights a dragon? <laughs> I want that to be um, 
stop motion as well. I want that. To yes. Be, yeah. Ray Harryhausen does the Wicker Man. You know oh, that. I would. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> someone get Phil Tippett to do this. You know, it's like please. Perfect. Yeah. I just imagine like the set photos that would have leaked. Like if Fuchs got on set and it's like our first photos from the set of the sequel to The Wicker Man, and it's just Edward Woodward with eagles tied to his wrist, just walking around. What the hell? It, it honestly feels like a description of every heavy metal magazine I read from 1982 to 1989 yeah. when I was a kid. But can you imagine how charred how he would have to be <laughs> to be rescued from that thing? It's going down. <laughs> I'm getting Venture Brother vibes here. Completely hairless for the whole movie. You know, it's, it'll be like Dark Man as well. You know, everything about ah, him yeah. would be right. It'd be just like <laughs> actually, I'm I'm really talking myself into this now. You know, if you could cross Dark Man. With, you know, stop motion and yeah, let's make it someone. Let's get the right. Oh, I like Darkman way more than I ever should. So that you've Oh, sold there's, me. Not, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no shame in that. <laughs> I just, I like to think now we, we, we talked about heavy metal when we did our revealer review mm-hmm. and episode. Now I like to think that the issue he was reading in that was, was this the loathsome right yeah. yeah. That's how I think about it now. Yeah, yeah. No, that would be incredible. Yeah, Sheffer's pitch yeah that was face i watched another movie of, of anthony schaffer's too we'll probably talk about his credits later in the episode but he did another movie called absolution right yeah which is i i hadn't heard of before this and is also is i don't think it's particularly great but is the central conceit of the movie is very interesting kind of similar to wicker man and sleuth where it's very much this kind of person who's you know being led around or, or in a game-like scenario of sorts it's interesting. That's that's definitely one. We'll probably talk about it more later. But yeah, it's an interesting film. Because obviously, people talk about The Wicker Man being sort of like the uh, the uber folk horror, which it obviously is, yeah. you know, but it is that kind of thing. You know, it, it's got links to things like, you know, Shutter Island and things like that as well. You know, that idea of people who are, who are absolutely trapped in the thing they don't realize, is, even something like the game, you know, when it's just like all these people who think they're in one adventure, but they're in another one, you know, and I love those films. Oh, yeah. Because again, you, if they're done well, you can watch it again and see everything going on around that you didn't, you missed because you're absolutely wrapped up. Because I think when you first watch The Wicker Man, I mean, obviously, as you say, it's quite hard to avoid the fact of what um, happens at the end. But my wife, then my girlfriend had never, she's not a horror fan, so she'd never seen anything about it. Oh, so wow. she watched it honestly believing he was going to save the day and save the girl and get away. And it was to see that moment when she suddenly realized he's not getting out of there. That was amazing to see the power it still has, you know, is that thing, you know, and it's now my go-to, I want to feel better movie. I'll put the Wicker Man on, you know, so it's like, (laughs) it it cheers me up. But for her, she was completely traumatized by the end with them all singing and dancing and all that kind of thing. And they're just so happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she was really angry with Lord Summerisle, you know, because he and he is the villain of the piece. He knows it's all rubbish, you know. He he's absolutely. I mean, there's the wonderful bit when he goes, "Yeah, my you know my grandfather, whoever it was, you know, just made it all up, and and now we believe it." <laughs> and he knows it's absolutely nothing to do. It's all to do with subtropical, you know, temperatures and that kind of thing. And so, but he's absolutely, and you do feel that thing of like the real sequel is him getting strung up the next year because that's what's going to happen. That's exactly what my wife had asked me. We watched this together. She had not seen it before. We watched it together last night and she's like, so did it work? You know, are the heart, is the harvest going to be good next year? I said, no, they totally forecasted. Summer Isle's going in that Wicker Man next year. Guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although not, not it, you know, it could be the actual sequel where he fights a dragon. 
Yeah, and that one, it turns out Summer Isle was right the whole time. Yeah. All I can picture is Howie standing over a dead dragon with a sword shouting, how about them apples now? Just, <laughs> I'm going to be stuck on this for weeks. That was uh, No, I had the same thought, the Goodwill Hunting thing. Except yeah, yeah. <laughs> just slapping an apple. <laughs> I, Sergeant Howie, I have a full orchard. Howie, you like them apples. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel the sequel would actually do an injustice to the, the original film. Oh, God damn. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. the, the, the sequel would go, oh, gods are real, Christ is real, battle, you know? And whereas right now, you can it leaves so much more into interpretation and you can, like, follow one group or the other. It, it's just too much. It's just, the sequel is just I, too much. I absolutely believe there should never be a sequel to it. Yes. However, I also believe there should be a sequel to it. <laughs> because I want to see, I want to see all those things. But again, it's because of the the skill of the acting, the skill of the direction, the skill of the story. You want Summer Isle to be, you know, brought down. You want him to be have his comeuppance. And he, mm-hmm. as many times I watch it, and many different versions I've watched, he never does. You know, so it's like, mm. and that's probably the most terrifying bit of all of it. You know, that they're all, everyone just has completely bought into him, and he's he's happy as Larry. I mean, he's sitting there, he's having baldy songs with the headmistress, you know, people are throwing hairs at him. He doesn't mind. He doesn't care. He's got a castle, you know? So <laughs> I got to admit, that's probably how I'd be if I had a castle. I mean, just yeah, yeah. can't blame the guy. That's how we all are over here. We're all exactly like that. That's, you know, it's just <laughs> everything you've seen is true. <laughs> I was going to say, that's where the real sequel lies, is that you stop with the outside sources. The, the, mm. A sequel should be from the eye, the viewpoint of someone who's a part of the village, a part of the aisle, mm. and someone who is like a true believer who actually taps into something real, and they end up rising up against Summer Isle. Yeah. That could be fun. There's elements of that in the Wicker Tree. Mm. Um, <laughs> vaguely. Okay. It's, you were talking about sequel stuff. That was my concern with the Wicker Tree. It's like, why would, you know, some great ideas, but it's like, it's, you know, why would you make a sequel to it? And then I saw Wicker Tree. It's like, okay. It really is more of a spiritual sequel than yeah. than anything else. But in terms of you know, Chris Lee's performance as Lord Summer Isle, it's I, I love among so many things that the movie does again that it's its execution of horror is it's you know so subversive in so many ways. It's all daytime horror, mm. predominantly daytime horror. It's it's not even like muted color schemes. It's very garish colors because it's at this festival scene. So garish colors, you know, th- the whole escalation of dread is based on people being thoroughly pleasant. <laughs> but with the intro of Lord Summer Isle. You know, this whole thing where he's built up through the movie of someone who's in a position of authority and we get the sequence where they're actually approaching his place. And, you know, there's people cavorting on his lawn nude. He has this enormous castle. We get in there. The castle has about 20 deer heads and 50 guns (laughs) and just literally on either side of this doorway in this massive keep. (laughs) And then when he finally and then, you know, going in, he's played by Christopher Lee, who at this point, when it would have come out, would have had, you know, his hammer heart, you know, that's Dracula stigma. And then he shows up and he says, hello. And so that whole just <laughs> subtle subversion. It's the one thing about the final cut I kind of have mixed feelings on is when he shows up earlier in the nighttime scene where he drops Ash Buchanan off. Yeah. And has the bit where he reads the Walt Whitman poem to himself as he watches the snails wrangle over each other. It's a really fun scene, but I kind of like the first time we actually see and hear him being when Howie gets into the castle. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. There's also the fact I noticed on the latest rewatch that is how he's walking through before Christopher Lee reveals himself on the the two tables. There are photographs. They're just eight by tens of apples. 
That's it. It's just like family photos. There's two of them. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? You know. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Introducing them earlier does kind of take away from that moment. I, I would agree with that. But it's, I don't know. The the whole thing, like everybody on the island, is so charming. Yeah. You know, it subverts your expectations, but then immediately slots right into them. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they're all so jolly. I mean, the guy, my favorite is the guy who's mowing the lawn in the graveyard. You know, he is. Yeah. And again, at the end, he's giving it the best of the, of the swaying. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's into it. He can't yeah, He's wait. the most overtly creepy performance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's creepy, but also, he's, you know, that he'd be really good if he had a pint in his hand and he was telling you stories. Yeah. You know, he's, <laughs> uh, he would be the life and soul of every pub. I mean, it looks like, he, yeah, we. I don't know if it really needs to be mowed that much, that, that graveyard, but he's given it a good go. Um, <laughs> but again, he's only really there so he can just sort of try and twist Howie a bit more. And, uh, you know, I love that. But yeah, he's, um, I think he's my favorite in all of it because he's just so happy about everything that's going on. Yeah, loves his job. He would absolutely be my first call for any exhumation. Yeah, oh, I gotta say, <laughs> you know. he had a second scene in the script, which is when Howie's. So originally, he he talks to Howie when Howie first gets to the graveyard. Then there's the scene in the church where he makes the impromptu cross. Yeah, and then as he's leaving, he sees in, in the script he's the uh, gardener is digging a grave, and he's digging it extraordinarily deep. And Howie comments, he says, "That's far deeper than the usual six feet, isn't it?" And he says, "You got to dig it deep so folks can't get to him." What do you mean, so folks can't get to him? And he said, oh, you know, people <laughs> go rooting around for stuff. He said, why would people dig up bodies? And he talks about the hand of glory. Yeah. He said, oh, you know, some people will dig them up and use them, use them to make a hand of glory. And so it's this whole setup for the hand of glory's appearance later. Which does come out of nowhere in the cut, you know. It's, but all yeah. the cuts, it's just there. Which I, it worked really well for me because I, going into it for whatever reason, I had never heard of the concept of a hand of glory before. Really? I had no idea what it was. So you really got to read the Invisibles, my man. <laughs> so funny thing you mentioned about that. Aside from the fact that we were talking about the Invisibles on our last episode, there's a documentary on. There's a lot of documentary featurettes on the Wicker Man, but I guess the BBC did a series called XSEX colon S, which I think was hosted by Alan Cummings mm-hmm. and going around various parts of Scotland. And there's one where he talks about the making of the Wicker Man, and when it opens. You know, looking up and down, you know, from my television to my laptop, taking notes, and all of a sudden I hear a voice that's very familiar, and I look up, and it's Grant Morrison and Mark Millar yeah. <laughs> standing next to each other, talking about growing up with the Wicker Man. So yeah, yeah. they're it's, they're very fleetingly interviewed, but they show up talking about the Wicker Man's influence on them growing up. So yeah, that's twice two episodes in a row. Grant Morrison's come oh. up. I have stayed in the Green Man in in the pub. Have you um, really? It was one of the most terrifying nights of my life <laughs> because it was it's almost completely a Scot speaking you know pub you know so there's not a lot of english going on in there and and it was very much i was there on a night where there was an event going on and so i was literally just sitting in the corner if they started to sing the landlord's <laughs> daughter i would have been out like a shot <laughs> time to go yeah exactly. <laughs> sorry <laughs> i can't stay unless you know brett eklund suddenly behind the bar and then well maybe i'll stay but um <laughs> you've got till may 1st so you know you're good yeah yeah exactly exactly this was november it was fine oh, you were fine <laughs> but yeah it was it was everything about it was um and they've got one picture of howie on the, in, in the bar but i mean basically i was there with someone who was giving a tour i was doing some writing about it and and they were saying, yeah, they really don't like people doing Wicker Man tours. And like, they told me this as I booked a night there. I was like, oh, brilliant. Good. This is it. And, uh, and obviously, they still, you know, they they get a lot of money in the area from it as well. But, you know, there's still a lot of the people in that bar remember 
it being made and remember finding out what it was about, you know. And mm. I talked to one person who's still very angry because that little cave they go in with Rowan, that's where Christianity came to the British Isles, that cave. Oh, that was where wow. the saint came and stayed. It's incredibly holy place it's like you go in there there's crosses everywhere there's people have left things Uh, and that was one of the first shots apparently let's just defile this right off the bat (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and so it's like they went for the one place that would piss everyone off in the local area oh and all the stories were true they had no idea what it was about and still it started to get out and you know it started to say oh it's something to do with satanism you know and all these kind of things Obviously, we're, you know, before the satanic panic thing. But, you know, again, it was it's quite a devout area as well of Scotland. Yeah, there was a person in the bar who was, like, properly angry about it. And they they have one picture of Edward Woodward in the bar just as a sort of, like, yeah, it happened, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I almost I almost see it, imagine, like, this picture of one of the walls is, if you see this man, deny him entry. <laughs> yeah. it's just slightly singed around the edges Um... I have to mention something since you you brought up satanic panic I don't get a a whole lot of free time for just free movie watching because the the pod keeps me so busy so I have a weird reward system set up for myself currently where I've been watching the films of a Chinese director named Sun Chung and every time I finish an edit of a pod episode I'll treat myself to a Sun Chung movie and so slowly working my way through like 40 films but yeah yeah and I watched a movie he made in 1992. It was his last movie called Angel Hunter and is about a police officer and his buddy, who's a professor of religions, who are trying to rescue a girl from a satanic cult headed up by Anthony Wong. And in the opening of the film, the professor is telling the protagonist cop about satanic cults and he plays footage of Anton LaVey and all this other stuff. And there's actual documentary footage at the three quarter mark or so of the film. They managed to actually get the girl out of the cultist building. And they take her to the professor's office and they're showing her stuff to be like, you know, this is what Satanists are like. And he grabs a VHS tape and he says, I'm going to show you what the cult you joined is actually like. He puts the VHS tape in, he hits play. And the next thing you see is Edward Woodward's head cresting a hill saying, oh, God, oh God!" <laughs> they play the ending of The Wicker Man in the movie and say it's documentary footage of real life Satanists. We said it is. And by the end of it, this girl goes, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> so, she goes, but that guy looks just like Edward. He just looks like the equalizer. <laughs> Pay no mind to that. <laughs> that is genius. That's absolutely genius. So we we have a comedy show over here called the well, not on anymore. It was the League of Gentlemen. Mark Gatiss, mm, is yes. the, yeah. And there are so many Wicker Man references. To, um, you know, <laughs> in it, there are just it's every other scene there seems to be a Wicker Man reference <laughs> to the point where they literally the shopkeeper going, "We didn't burn him." When you know they're trying, to, the policeman's looking for a, <laughs> <laughs> looking for a stranger. And you know, and and there's moments when the one of the guys in there, you know, is, is constantly doing the. You did it wonderfully, you know, and it's just like it's, <laughs> it's so ingrained in a lot of like the the horror culture over here still, and it's just and um, we all do it. I mean, my only link to it is that I've so I, I write Star Wars comics. I do a series called um, Vader's Castle, which I think you mentioned earlier on. I have issue two here. Le- yeah, they let me do the Wicker Man with the Ewoks. Yep, nice. which I wanted to be called the Wicked Man. <laughs> but they it's not the right time frame. Wicket wasn't born yet, so it's about oh. Chief Chirper when he's a when he's a kid. 
and they're, they're sacrificing Watlins to a big demon. And so, and again, that was I pitched it and went, they're never going to let me do it. Never, ever going to let me do this. And yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Robert Hacks, the artist, is, there's a massive page, which is a giant wicker Ewok. And that's yep. made me so happy. So much. <laughs> it's amazing. If I never yeah. write Star Wars again, I can always look back at the Wicket Man and, you know, and it's just, it, you know, it's brilliant. They let you get away with that and turning Count Dooku into a vampire for an issue. Yeah, yeah. And then we turned Tarkin into Frankenstein as well. We did a Tarkin monster episode. <laughs> Basically, Michael Seglain, the head of publishing at Lucasfilm, is a huge Universal and Hammer nut. Oh, nice. That's where this... So this is an, an annual thing I do every year. It's for kids, allegedly. Um, and we did Tales from Vader's Castle. We got another one this year with Tales from the Rancor Pit. And we just... It's like Treehouse of Terror, but for Star Wars. And so it's it's not we don't have to worry about canon or anything because they're all stories that are told you know and so this might have happened this might not have we don't care and it's just you know and yeah it's been great they let me get away with a lot of things like that but i don't think i'm ever going to top the wicker man with ewoks it's like that was like my perfect childhood to you know things i was obsessed with (laughs) i was obsessed with wicker man far too early and i was obsessed with ewoks and so it all finally came together and drawn by Robert Hack too. It was yeah. it looks stunning. And and the Perfect. Count Dooku issue was Kelly Jones too. It was. So yeah, well again, Kelly's a, a massive um Hammer fan. So he did the Tarkin's Monster one as well. Um The Terror of Tarkin. So Oh fabulous. That that makes a lot of sense given his art. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, he's he's a proper classic horror fan. Well, I mean, it really is kind of neat how ingrained this film is in mm. just in horror in general, but in, in you know, overall culture aspects. Reddit a couple of times referred to it as the Citizen Kane of horror. Yeah. And it feels kind of apt, honestly. I mean, you know, I, again, I had never seen it, but, you know, watching it, you know, I knew a lot of it. And then, you know, I'd seen Midsummer before, and now I know the entire genesis of that film. Oh, yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and as an icon, I mean, I'm sitting here and behind me on my shelf, I've got a, um, a wax wicker man. Yay! Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> Constantly looking over me. So, you know, in just that, you know, the iconography of the Wicker Man itself. I mean, father, there are now Wicker Man festivals, you know, in Scotland. There's Burning, <laughs> like the Burning Man and stuff, you know. It's it's something that, because I, I love folklore, and there's not much evidence that these things even really existed. There's a couple of references, you know, but everyone now knows what a Wicker Man is because of that film. And I think that's the, the strength of it as well. It's created folklore. Well, the, the lore in it is so... Tight is probably the wrong word, but it feels so lived in. It's plausible. And yep. all the stuff and that they talk about, it feels like, oh, yeah, I buy that. And, you know, and, and it seems so perfectly entwined with how they made the movie and how everybody act. It just it felt very naturalistic. You know, and a lot of times you put mythologies and stuff like that in films and stories. It can feel a little clunky. Yeah. And this one, it's just like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. I buy it. Sure. It's more believable than what he's spewing about, you know. There is an, you know, an element. It does. It, it is. There are basis in Celtic mythology and, and folklore yeah there are elements there but uh, it does pull in from different you know it pulls in from some norse stuff it pulls in, so it's the most british horror because of that because it's done the thing mm. that just like britain does it's like i'll have that bit i'll have this bit you know we're gonna you know we're gonna pull all all this stuff together and i think that's why it resonates so much over here because it, it's the the victorians basically made up mythology for the, the british isles you know that, that didn't was never you know like druidism and stuff it was just all just like there's no historical basis for any of this it's what they just thought would happen you know 
And again, I think that's all wrapped in it. You know, it's that idea of the sort of new age thing, which would have become, you know, was really popular at the time. And it's all that sort of false mythology and false folklore, which has just enough basis in truth for you to believe it. Mm. I mean, I sacrifice someone on a Wicked Man every year. I mean, it's, it's what we do. <laughs> but that's how I mean, we do have, you know, like the Village Green down the. I, I mean, I don't live in a village. It's still called the Village Green. We've got a maypole there. You know, it's it's what we do. I mean, you know, it's not quite the same as you see in the in the film, but you know, <laughs> maypoles are a big thing on May Day. So again, it's the, the thing of like what they added to the maypole and the mythology and the lesson they give around the the maypole scene to the girls in the in the schoolroom. Yeah, there is a phallic thing about you know the maypole and all that. You know, it's a fertility dance and all that kind of thing. No one really knows what it's all about. It's just tradition. And so, again, you look at the Wicker Man, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's plausible. Yeah, that's exactly what they believe. I'm going to start doing that. Yep. <laughs> and hopefully not many people are start. But, but again, there, you know, <laughs> but there's elements of that. You sit there and go there. Like being in touch with nature and all that kind of thing, you know, that's it's not a bad thing. You know, there's enough in there to make you think they've got a pretty good idea of what life's like. You know, there's no hang-ups there. The women don't have any problems with the blokes. Just, you know, the folks nope. just love them being there, you know, and the entire <laughs> thing, you know, Willow is the most important person in that village. There's so much in it that makes you think, yeah, you could see, you could believe this. This is what it was actually like, whereas it's all made up, which is amazing. It's certainly, it's certainly more appealing than, you know, I, I don't want to be too offensive here, but for sort of the, the brand of Christianity that he seems to be espousing through all this. Oh, yeah, so Presbyterian. Harsh yeah, yeah, and dogmatic. And then all these people are like, yeah, let's go screw on the lawn. And it's like, well, <laughs> I got to say, the two options. Yeah, the scene at the beginning, it's quite, you know, he's sitting there very prim and proper with his fiance looking at him lovingly. Or you could be on the island, middle of the night, yeah. you know, doing, <laughs> doing it like the snails. And that's particularly problematic for him because it's well established that he is still a vir- an actual virgin waiting yeah, yeah. for marriage. So, like, there's just all of these natural urges just screaming at him, like, going, look, <laughs> yeah. you could live here. <laughs> and that's what you get from Edward Wood, but the, just the frustration of the man. Yep. Yep. You know, I mean, he it, and, and he's appalled. And, you know, and like mm-hmm. the scene with the making the crucifix on the altar. He's properly angry at that point. You know, he's he's offended. It's almost like he understands at least his concept of sacrifice. Yeah. You know, it's self-sacrifice. It's what do you give up of yourself, not of others. <laughs> this is particularly. And, and he is well-versed in self-sacrifice. And that's why he takes such an affront to this island because the entire island's like, we see your self-sacrifice and we find it lacking and unnecessary. And it's just the sheer existence of these people are an affront to his beliefs. And they're so dismissive of it as well. And that's why, you know, they are so like, yeah, you know, Christianity had its chance. I mean, they literally say, you know, he he had his chance and he blew it. He blew it. He actually says he blew it. I love it so much. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's like, you know, they're not angry about Christianity. They're just like, yeah, it's a thing. You know, it's it's, it's over, there. over there. I mean, they literally yeah. the the schoolmistress says, you know, it's comparative religion. Yep. Which for him is just like what, you know, and uh, yeah, it's I love it. I love it so much. They're they're very live and let live. Well, I guess not there at the end, but for the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the with that's, one notable exception. <laughs> as far as the belief system goes, that's the yeah. one big threat of their belief system is that sacrificing him is such a small thing. Like it matters to the harvest and it matters to the energy and to invoking the gods and bringing in the power to push them forward. That being said, 
to them, death is just a mild transition. No one has actually, they're very clear that, you know, they don't use the word dead because to them, it's you're immediately becoming a part of everything again. And they think they're giving him a gift as well. You yeah. know, as, as someone yeah, else says, you know, we yeah. are making you, you're in your eyes of your gods, you're amazing now. Yep. Because you're being martyred. So it's a win-win. The thing that's always made me wonder, and I love the idea, is that what would happen if he had slept with Willow on that night? Right. Who's uh, going in the wicker? What a fun inversion of horror tropes that potentially, actually, you know, character, you know, having sex would have potentially saved yeah, him yeah. rather than, you know, the 80s slasher trope of being, you know, your doom. Because if he uh, ruins himself as the sacrifice, they would have reverted to Rowan, probably. Yeah. They probably would have gone ahead with the kid's sacrifice because yeah. it would have at that point been more powerful than him. Because they've been keeping her for a year or whatever. Again, you don't know. You don't know what they've actually, you know, how much is true, how much isn't, you know. And yeah, I mean, that's the scary thing. It's like, yeah, she would absolutely have been up there. They even say, you know, the kids aren't as potent. You know, it's like, you know. Yep. And how do you know, sir? (laughs) We were talking earlier about potential sequel stuff. And it's when I was watching it, one of the things that got stuck in my head was I really wanted to see the prequel to this because I wanted to see the weeks-long process of them meticulously, of Summerisle meticulously structuring this whole thing and, like, handing out binders to everyone in town, be like, all right, so he's, here are the, the various if-then scenarios in the brain, like, structuring a video game of all these if-then scenarios. Just watch The Sting. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, but it's even more that. They found him. Yep. They mm-hmm. actively sought him out. They've sought him out. So they had to go to the mainland and find the virgin policeman. I'm assuming they found him and went, well, how are we going to get in there? I know what we'll do. Yep. But even though that, you know, they need, someone would have, you know, must be working for them on the mainland. You know, it's, and when you start thinking about that, you realize how, how dreadful it is, you know, and how much work's gone into this. Mm-hmm. It's probably the Apple distributor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, again, what, what a brilliant community. You know, they can pull this off and there's not been one argument through the entire thing. You know, most people can't even have a May Day, you know, dancing around a maypole without being an argument. But with this, the entire community comes together as one and are really happy about it. And everything works. This is why the Samurai religion is brilliant, because, you know, there's never just because you've got to sacrifice someone once a year. (laughs) And you got to imagine those conversations. too. It's like, well, who are we burning this year? Ah, her. what, What if we tried something different? Or get somebody from the mainland? I don't know. Well, it'll be a cop. Oh yeah, shit. Then let's go. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> all in. Yeah. No, yeah, no one's argued this point. It's like, do you think we should do this? It's like, let's have a song about it. Okay. <laughs> and I ended up inadvertently getting my wish reading the script this morning. It turns out they're during the sequence after they've caught Howie coming out of the cave, but before they take him up to the Wicker Man, there's a sequence where Summer Isle basically explains everything yeah it's like four pages of dialogue and so basically it's as they're stripping the punch costume off of howie he's just expositing over this whole plan i'll probably read it in a later portion of the episode just because it's the the amount of of exposition summer isle dumps is is fascinating but in the midst of that he has a line talking about well the alternative to this basically was you know, sacrifice one of our own. And I, I didn't want to do that. I love everyone too much. So yeah, he talked to, and you know, I didn't want to have to, you know, sacrifice a kid. So uh, yeah, outsider he, it is. Decent bloke, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, does, he doesn't seem that bad. I mean, you know, he, everything he does is kind of reasonable, I guess. This is the problem with it. You start thinking about it and you go, I, I, I can want to move there. 
what are the house prices like? It seems quite good, you know. <laughs> I, the, the only drawback for me is I get sore throats fairly regularly, and I don't know if I want to, you know, have an entire frog so in my mouth. On a frog. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, all they have is apples because everything else is rubbish, you know. So all that 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 food he has, you know. So you know the the broad beans and the, and the tin potatoes, you know. So the, the, all they have is apples to eat. I I absolutely love the harvest photos because yeah. there's like the previous years where it's like huge bounty next year, huge bounty. And he finally finds the missing photo and it's like her, a single gourd and an empty <laughs> crate. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they included the empty crate for the shot. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> we, have to, we have to have the photo. Come on. <laughs> she's, she's so happy. I was, I was like, who takes this picture? Who does this? <laughs> The man who pickles piglets and is yeah. In his <laughs> he had a lot more dialogue and uh, the photographer. He, there's a lot of dialogue with him, and he explains exactly why he has a jar of foreskins. Yeah, in the script, he says you know, all this stuff. Yeah, he talks about the the photo stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They spent a lot of time thinking this through. This was a religion they really worked out. You know, it's really, <laughs> it's that classic thing when you you world build and you're like, you know, most of it you have to leave in your notes and they basically created a religion it's know, perfect <laughs> so my lord royal has a source book that he's thinking of selling to white wolf just in case one little tidbit i really liked about this film edward woodward was offered several times to go and actually see the worker man before his scene and he's like no 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 yeah i want to go in cold i want to i want to see it for the first time when you bring me up and you can see it in his performance. Like there is some, he, he's acting, but there's some genuine like, oh shit, terror kind of going on in his head because he's like, ah, that's in, that's intimidating and terrifying. And apparently like, you know, you can actually see scenes of him in The Wicker Man while it's on fire. And I, I can't even imagine, you know, <laughs> trying to like act while <laughs> in that scenario. It's just so terrifying. That thing would go up quick as well. So I was, right? I was really, yeah. the, the first time I was, I was really upset because literally the, the legs were there for years and about a month before I went, they were stolen. You know, someone yes. oh, no. stole the legs. So there are little tiny stumps left, whereas before they were like proper old, you know, and they kept them there. For, it's on like a um, caravan park. It's on like a trailer park. <laughs> you know, you can go and just wander over and there it is. And yeah, all the locations are incredible. Like the school is a, a private house, but they've got an apple tree outside, which is just like you're sitting there going, "Can I take an apple? Is that allowed?" You know. It's like... <laughs> and then the see um, what all the hubbub's about. The postmistress's place is a very, very posh art gallery. Wow! It really does not want you to go in and say, "Can I talk to you about the Wicker Man?" They have no interest <laughs> in that, that whatsoever. So I tried that. That didn't go well. <laughs> But yeah, when you go there, it's it's so surreal because you you literally, you know, it hasn't changed a lot. The town, you know, it's still very much like it, just with you know less um, parades. But it, there's a real again, there's a sense of like they know what they've got from a tourist point of view. They don't really like talking about it, <laughs> <laughs> probably because it's actually all true, and we're all saying it's a made up religion. And it's literally <laughs> what they do. Stop talking about this. Come back tonight. You'll see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> walk through the green. Yeah, yeah. Go for a walk up by the coast tomorrow morning. You know, just when, you know, it'd be fine. What could go wrong? A nice jog. What would you say? You're about six, seven? You know. <laughs> 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 
No, well, Kevin, we certainly appreciate you taking some time to come talk with us about your favorite horror movie. That's right. No, I, it, I will always talk about this film until you know, until someone burns me. <laughs> Related to that, I'll mention for anyone who hasn't checked it out, uh, you were on a, a bonus episode of another podcast called Hammer House of Podcast. Oh, good, yeah, yeah. Paul Cornell yeah. and Elizabeth Miles, yeah. and yeah, listen to that episode. It's love. It's it's a Patreon exclusive. So anyone, if you want to hear Kevin talk about Wicker Man more, absolutely go check out the Patreon for that pod, Hammer House of Podcast. Yeah, I've got, I've got, you know, I do turn up just to talk about Wicker Man. You know, when people least expect it, there I'll be. Two people mention Wicker Man, I appear. <laughs> Now, will you come back when we do Wicker Tree? Uh, I, I will come back spiritually. Um, okay. You know. Look at the time. <laughs> so you're saying you don't want to come back when we do the, the remake, though? No, Because no, no, no. that doesn't exist. I told you. <laughs> that's, that's not a real thing. Um, no. Yeah. I will happily talk about you know many of his films, but that one it never got made. It just never happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk about some of the hard stuff of your own that you have coming up. So coming up in December, you've got a six-issue mini coming up from IDW called Dead Seas with a previous collaborator of yours, Nick Brokenshire, right? Yes. So yeah, Nick and I um, got together working on the Vader's Castle series for IDW. For, again, he's a, another Brit. He's from Scotland. And he's never burnt anyone as far as I know. Um, <laughs> but we started talking about, you know, immediately we got on and we was like, we want to do something and it has to be horror. And so Dead Seas is a, it's more of a, you know, I've written some stuff that like, you know, is more sort of darker horror. This is more of an adventure romp horror. You know, it's basically a disaster movie with added ghosts. So I was obsessed growing up with things like Poseidon Adventure and Italian Inferno and things like that. And recently I've worked on this big Star Wars project called The High Republic. And when we started that, we had a list of key films that we all wanted to watch, you know, touchstone films, just to get in the mood, you know, and one of them was the Poseidon Adventure, which I'd not seen for a while. And I watched it and I started thinking, I love this, but it would be so much better if the people who die immediately came back as zombies or ghosts. Because then they'd have to drive get, awesome. get off the boat, <laughs> but get past the ghosts or the zombies. And that is Dead Seas. So Dead Seas tells the story of a bunch of prisoners who are sent to a prison ship and it's in a world where ghosts are very real. Everyone knows they're real. They have to deal with them every single day of the year. And some big bastard company has worked out that ectoplasm is actually really, it's like a miracle cure for so many things. So they want to harvest it. <laughs> the only trouble is harvesting ectoplasm means you need to be near the ghosts and you there's a habit of going mad as long as you're near them. So they send these prisoners in to scrape it off the walls while you've got all these weird and wonderful ghosts. And Nick just draws the best ghosts in the world. And this being a disaster movie, something happens and the ship starts going down. And so what that means for everyone on board the ship is that as soon as the ship starts sinking, there's more ghosts because the guards, the prisoners, they all start drowning and they start coming back immediately. Nice. So um, it's, it's nuts. And Nick is, he's come up with this ghost system that, you know, every ghost is a representation of either how they died or what was going through the person's head. You know, at the moment they die. Oh wow! So oh, I like they're it. not just coming back as a nice floating apparition. You know, some of these people have horses heads. Some of the people have like arms missing with tentacles coming out. It's just everything is doing. There's one called the child, which is a massive baby made up of different heads that are all saying "mother, mother, mother" um, all the time. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's been. We worked on this a lot before we even pitched it to anyone. It, we treated it like a movie. Nick just did concept art. He just went for it and came up with all these ghosts and I was like, it was amazing for me because I was going, 
we'll have that one in the scene and we'll have this one in that scene. And um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So it's the first issue comes out on the 21st of December. It's going to be fun. I think people are going to dig it. That sounds amazing. No, yeah, I saw the first few the preview pages and yeah, it looks terrific. So really excited for that one. You've also got about halfway through the second Titans United series, Blood Pact. Yeah. You know, I just read the third issue when I was eating my lunch today, right before right. we started recording. I'm really enjoying the series. Oh, cool. I'm a big Titans fan, so any yeah, anything same. with the sort of the classic Titans is just a good time. Yeah, I, so Titans is a weird one because it's DC wanted when the Titans TV show took off. And, you know, and kids really love it. Kids who never, like my kids, they know every Marvel hero. I mean, they know who Moon Knight is, for Christ's sake. But can I get them <laughs> to pick up a comic? No, I can't. And so this is, DC are trying to actively tackle this now so they asked me if i'd be interested in doing a comic that was the roster of the titans show but pretty much the new teen titans continuity it's not in normal dc continuity so i haven't got to worry about any of that it's just for me it's like what if the you know the the perez and wolfman teen titans continued and they all now look like you know they're all grown up and so we did the first series of that with the second one they let me get away with doing an alternate reality so in the second one robin Tim Drake is fighting with the, the Titans. There's some weird blood magic shit goes on with Brother Blood. And then he wakes up and Raven is worshipped the world over as a god. And there's sacrifices. Hang on a minute. <laughs> there might be a link here. Um, and, you know, and Starfire is the high priestess. And, you know, so it's really fun to be able to get into some of that kind of stuff with the Titans. Again, it's all, that's all baked into the series right back from the 80s with Brother Blood. So yeah, most of the stuff I do has a horror element to it. I mean, the stuff I've been doing for Star Wars, for Marvel, it's, yeah, it's, you know, they're hut corpses that are bursting open because they've got living vegetation <laughs> in them and stuff. And, yeah, it's... Yes. The, when we launched the High Republic, the, I was doing an interview and the guy, Mike Seglano, I mentioned earlier, was in an interview as well. And I went, of course, so the High Republic's a horror comic. And he was going, I don't think it's a horror comic, you know, covering up. You know, it's an adventure and it's a romp. And then he got issue three he went, back and he went, Oh yeah, that's a horror comic. It was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so most of the stuff I do, I manage to sneak it in there. And you've got another horror comic you did. You just kickstarted Sleep Terrors. Sleep Terrors with Legendary, yeah. And then I've got the Shadow Service you mentioned. We've got the new volume of that coming out as well. So Sleep Terrors is a, it's a bit of a my love letter to Stephen King. It's um, you know, a woman who has an accident and then suddenly wakes up with powers because you know that happens. That's that's what it is. Every time I've had an accident, I've wondered where my powers are <laughs> so she she's been in a coma she comes out of the coma and she starts to realize that if she has nightmares about someone who's like say someone has wronged her in the day someone's walked into um her and spilt coffee or something in the queue for the shop that night she'll dream about that person getting you know coffee raining down and scolding them to death she'll wake up going oh that's a horrible dream but then it's actually happened in the real world so she's got something in her called the sleepwalker who is living out her fantasies in dreams. And then she realizes that going to sleep is a really bad idea because someone would die. The only problem is, <laughs> since her accident, she's narcoleptic. Ah! So she can't help herself from going to sleep. Oh, wow. So that's, that's, um, that's awesome. That's sleep terror. So that, yeah, we kickstarted it. So there's a Kickstarter um, edition coming out. And then next year, I think it's going to hit. Oh, fabulous. And you said you've got a third round of Shadow Service coming up? So yeah, Shadow Service has got the third volume coming out in January. So Shadow Service is basically, it's the inside of my head when I was a kid. So it's a bit of like, it's <laughs> it's about a group of spies called MI666 who are, you know, the sort of deal with the satanic attacks of Great Britain. And it's about a new recruit who gets dragged into there. And yeah, so it's a, there's a lot of hammer in there. 
um, a lot of it's set in the modern day, and it, but it's a lot of demons. There's a lot of you know, it's a lot of James Bond. Basically, I I, I mashed together I, when I was a kid. I was obsessed with Hammer. I was obsessed with Doctor Who, and I was obsessed with James Bond. And so, as Shadow well, you Services, should be. Yeah, exactly. I was British. I had, I had to be obsessed about all those things. It's in the law. It's in the constitution. Um, so Shadow Service is, is basically me going, can I do all that and have a really sweary lead character? Okay, yes, I can. So um, the lead character is a girl who's uh, always been a witch. She doesn't know why she's a witch. She has no friends because she keeps doing horrible things to them. She can't help it. Every now and then she's in a situation, a magic word will just pop into her head and she doesn't know what it's going to do until she said it and something dreadful happened. So She's become a PI on the streets to try and help people because it's the only thing she can think to do because as a witch, she can find stuff. So she's trying to keep away from all these people and she gets recruited for this this secret service who deals with you know, satanic attack, literal satanic attack. No satanic panic, actual proper demons trying to you know invade Britain, which has been happening for years. <laughs> it's a tremendously fun book. Great art also by Corin Howell. Yeah, well, she's incredible. Current, uh, yeah, we'd, again, we'd work together on kids' Star Wars projects. This is how I find people to do really twisted horror with. Um, and I didn't expect there would be so many monsters in Shadow Service, even though I love monsters with a passion that knows no end. But then she started to draw the demons, and I was like, oh, we're having more of this. So, you know, it was like entire issues of trying to work out. This latest one, it was a moment where it is the kind of book that we go, Shall, can we do this? And she said, I said, what do you want to draw? She went, I'd really like to do a dragon, but there's probably no way we can have dragons in Shadow Service. So I was like, oh, I'm sure we can find a way of having a dragon in there. So, um, yeah, <laughs> oh, we, there's an entire issue of a dragon just tearing down London. So um, she's incredible. She's phenomenal. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm so excited to read the third go round of it. Uh, is there anything else coming up you'd like to plug? I think that's probably enough. I think everyone listening to this is going, what? Well. <laughs> you certainly keep busy. So. Um, yeah, there will be some more stuff going. Again, Star Wars takes up the majority of my life. It's the day job, um, you know, and, and so that's ongoing. But yeah, there will, there are more horror projects coming because that is really where my heart is. So, you know, I'm a horror fan at heart and a horror writer at heart. So. Us too, really. Yeah, I, I thought you might be. You know, <laughs> I, I've got the idea. Well, yeah, we'll be reading all of them, so excited to read them but yeah mostly again thank you so much for coming and chatting with us we appreciate it no thanks for having me thank you very much thank you once again <laughs> big thanks to kevin scott for joining us <laughs> it was so fabulous having kevin on that's not why i'm chuckling i'm chuckling because i'm recording this immediately after what you would have heard at the preface of kevin's book <laughs> 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 The first couple minutes of this episode. <laughs> Look, I stand by my description of this film. Where I had to pull the equivalent of a showtime at the Apollo and pull Jake off stage with a big hook. <laughs> you hear the sirens going off. <laughs> and the Sandman came out to yank Jake off stage. But... So real quick, before we go back into that pile of depravity, I just want to say thank you. Kevin, so much for his time. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. It was great to have you on. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be coming out in, we were hoping for November. Now it looks like it'll be December. So again, Kevin mentioned Dead Seas, which will be coming out from IDW. The book sounds like a lot of fun. Go check it out. But yeah, we love Kevin's work. It was so much fun talking to him. Can't wait to have him back on for, I know Kevin loves Hammer Horror. We could do that or anything Kevin wants. That was a fabulous time. You should also go buy his DC tie-ins he did for the Black Adam film. Because, you know, mostly, like, movie tie-ins, you're like, yeah, well, whatever. 
but these were really good. Yeah, they are. I, They're I really very enjoyed good. those, and it was a it was a surprise. Like I read the first one, I'm like, hold up, this was a good comic, and I wasn't expecting that from a tie-in. Yeah, and Kevin talked about his Wicker Man Ewok story and his Count Dukula story that he did for Tales from Vader's Castle. There's a trade paperback with all five issues of that, so you can just get the trade. So it has those two stories and three other ones, and they're all super fun. So, back to the titty musical. <laughs> Come on, other podcasts. This is the Citizen Kane of horror. Ours. Hey, look at this titty musical. I just want to keep saying it, because it's fun to say. Before we get too far into the, you know, picking up on the movie discussion, Nick, you want to do the crew rundown? I can do that. So this is The Wicker Man from 1973, directed by Robin Hardy, who you might also know from such wonders as The Wicker Tree and The Fantasist, as we described earlier in our conversation. Written by Anthony Schaefer, who also wrote Frenzy, Death on the Nile, Absolution, and Sleuth, which we Mm -hmm. also discussed earlier. Edited by Eric Boyd Perkins, For Your Eyes Only, The Crucifier of Blood, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and The Gorgon. Oh, we we had mostly overlap again. It was was like, oh, Nick, you missed Hawk the Slayer in 1980. (laughs) It's Hawk the Slayer, man. Also, apparently, I guess when he wrapped up film editing, he went into ADR editing and did ADR editing on a bunch of stuff, but namely Monster Squad. Hell yeah. So, of all things, I was like, oh, all right. You know, eventually we're going to have to break down and do like an 80s fantasy special episode and yeah. do like talk to slayer and yeah. Beastmaster and sword oh, and sorcerer Beastmaster. and all that just one one big one of our big old style big four movie episodes which brings us to the cinematographer uh harry waxman who's known for flash gordon oh. vampires the beast in the cellar uh, i'll just throw out a couple um since we're a horror pod i'll throw out twisted nerve which is a british thriller with billy whitelaw in it from 1968 Brighton Rock, which is the old black and white thriller from 1947, which has been on my watch list for ages. And a great Queen song. And also, I randomly loves Swiss Family Robinson. Apparently, ah! he was the DP on that. So Fun. You don't like Brighton Rock, Nick? Huh? You made a face when I said, oh, so a fabulous Queen song. You looked at me like I was nuts. That's a good song. No, I was like, eh. No, I was agreeing with you. It was an eh, not an eh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You made your judgy face, and I got confused. It's an important song to another favorite movie of mine. If you've ever seen Baby Driver. I have not seen Baby Driver. What? Hey, I got to do it. What? <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy sipping water. What? <laughs> I've not seen Baby Driver. Oh, man. Which is funny, because we're probably going to bring up an Edgar Wright film before too long. Just not that one. Oh, boy, are we. We'll get to that, though. I saw the music for this being by Paul Giovanni, who worked on Just This. Yeah, uh, is from music, yeah, but it's funny. You mentioned The Crucifer of Blood earlier, and I believe he wrote that. I have in my notes that one of his few other credits was as a writer on that. I didn't dig into it, but I believe he worked on that as well. And he's in this movie. You see him singing some of the songs. Right, yes. yes. You hear his voice even more than that, yeah. And this is produced by British Lion Film Corporation, who also uh, produced such works as Don't Look Now, The Wicker Man Remake, (laughs) (laughs) Sisters, and the city of the dead. Really, sisters? Oh, that's interesting. yeah. Don't look now makes sense because so for we might have mentioned this in the chat with Kevin, but part of the reason the Wicker Man was cut so short in a theatrical version was because they wanted it as a B picture, as a double feature to Don't Look Now, and I guess in the tradition is the B picture has to be shorter than the main feature, so they wanted to get the runtime a bit down. Okay. I mean, aside from I think the studio, you know, famously Christopher Lee often tells the story about how 
Michael Dealey, the head of the studio or the guy who took over the studio famously, you know, said the Wicker Man was one of the 10 worst movies he had ever seen. Oh, so they, they wanted to cut it down for a variety of reasons, but that was a big one. It being part of this double feature with don't look now, which my perspective, man, imagine that going to see that double feature. Don't look now and the Wicker Man back to back. Holy shit. Don't look now is high on my to do list. Actually, I haven't seen. it. Oh, yet. I love don't look now. I, yeah, I hear it's now fantastic. Stuff. That's interesting. That's kind of like how soon is now being a B side where the, the B side is better than the A side. Which what was it on the A side for? Uh, it's like, well, I wonder or something. I forget exactly. That's how good the A-side was. <laughs> and this was distributed in the U.S. Uh, by Warner Brothers, who also distributed such things as It, Interview with the Vampire, and The Shining. I would just like to quickly uh, make note of some of the actors, too, as well. At least the, the two leads, in my opinion. So we have Sergeant Howie, played by Edward Woodward. Yes! Who I've always known from The Equalizer. Like, that, I grew up with him on my TV screen. <laughs> <laughs> He also makes a short appearance in Hot Fuzz, and he's in Breaker Marat. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here, because you brought up Edward Woodward. And you mentioned Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. He's Tom Weaver in that, head of surveillance. Tom Weaver, yep. And this is actually going to be our community connection. Hey! So, as we said, plays Tom Weaver in Hot Fuzz. And in Hot Fuzz, when the officers go down to the pub on Simon Pegg's first day in the town... The song Baby Fratelli by the Fratellis is playing. Baby Fratelli is also used in season two, episode one, the opening scene of the community as the camera pans across the the guys in their bedrooms. The same song is playing. So, yes, it's in Hot Fuzz with Tom Weaver, who was in, of course, The Wicker Man. I was going to use that into a lead in to talk about Hot Fuzz, but we'll do that later. You shake your head all you want. I got to do I don't like it. Fratelli song. <laughs> I don't like it. Look, don't let me like ask it. you this. How many direct connections do you think are between a, you know, a, a fairly small budget nope. British film nope, in nope, 1972 nope. and Community? Because Christopher Lee did not appear on Community, and that was your only chance, really. See, next you're going to tell me that you know these movies share air, and therefore they're connected with... <laughs> no, no. These are connected by a Fratelli song. A very good Fratelli song. Eh. From a very good Fratelli's album. Eh. <laughs> and it's also it's a lead-in to talk about Hot Fuzz, which is almost a remake of The Wicker Man. But we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah, Edgar Wright, big fan of The Wicker Man. Yeah, I've actually got a, a snippet from an interview I'll, I'll read a little bit later when we oh, start talking awesome. about that. Yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, just real quick on Edward Woodward, I also mentioned, I mentioned it before in our chat with Kevin, but again, uh, he did another horror film called The Appointment by Lindsay Vickers, which just had a Blu-ray released. If you really, really like slow burn horror, like even slower burn than stuff like The Wicker Man, check it out. I really enjoyed it. But we mentioned it in the discussion with Kevin, but again, worth noting, I think, Edward Woodward is is really terrific in this film. Yeah. It's such an easy part to to play and be, you know, like comically stiff and comically overwrought. Like the, the script specifies a lot of the stuff is he's even angrier in the script or he's even more domineering. Like the scene where he shows up at the school. Uh, quick tangent, one of the things we talked about with discussion with Kevin is the like the humor elements of the Wicker Man. Now, one of the big cruxes of making that humor work is the fact that the movie has a straight man as its protagonist is the Edward Woodward character of Sergeant Howie, who is just absolutely incredulous at, you know, everything going on around him. And the script specifies he gets a lot angrier constantly at pretty much everything around him. And Woodward in his performance dials a lot of that back. Like when he goes into the school, you know, and he hears him talking about, you know, the penis and phallic symbols and whatever. 
in the script, he basically like slams the door open. And he's like, I need to talk to you outside. And he just instantly goes ballistic on the teacher. Whereas in the film, it's one of the funniest moments of the movie is him absolutely flummoxed and just, could I talk to you outside for a moment? <laughs> so the bit where he's, you know, he has those moments, but those bits where he tries to have some semblance of like reel himself in a bit, which makes this character that is already emblematic of this, fascistic you know police element and also this you know pious religious asshole but he adds some human elements that could easily have been lost and his approach to the character you know really helps stuff like the ending land more i mean i mean he's oh yeah throughout similarly and i i like woodward's approach to playing like complicated characters or characters that could easily be one but giving more nuance to him um his character breaker morant could be kind of similar also, I rewatched Breaker Morant for this, and it because I like that movie a lot. It occurred to me, I was like, nobody says Christ like Edward Woodward. <laughs> yeah. Because, of course, there's this movie where he's like, oh, God, oh, Christ. But there's a great scene of Breaker Morant where he's just, oh, Christ. <laughs> I remade a stock and trade just saying Christ. It, it's funny you bringing up him changing the approach in the script a bit. Because, like, he's an asshole. Like, like, let's be honest yeah. here. The cop comes to the town. He's just an asshole the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like the way he portrays it as an asshole is the script sounds like he's portraying a fucking asshole. You know, yes. <laughs> it's a very exactly. different. And, and while both are assholes, you can still have some sympathy for the way Edward Woodward brings to the character. You can still root for him a bit. Yes. You know, you can say, OK, you're misguided. OK, you mean well. You know, it, it's it, you can. You can still see him as a person instead of just this force where you're at the end. You're like, oh, thank God they're killing him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have some modicum of sympathy. Yep. For him you need at, that at the end or, you know, because otherwise it having him have a degree of nuance to him. It makes the fact that he stays devout throughout. Like we talked with Kevin about the bit about how he's crying out for God at the end. He's, you know, he's sincere in it. He's still. Yep. To the end, he is a believer and he's begging for salvation. And it adds a degree of actual tragedy to that. And rather than, yeah, fuck you, asshole, burn, you know. <laughs> I, I wonder how this would play if he showed it at like a megachurch. <laughs> Not well, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> like he, you get the feeling he wouldn't be viewed quite as, as maybe as much of an asshole. Because some of the, the, the way we're reading it is that overt piousness, that aggressive piousness that people of a less religious bent read differently than somebody who you know is in part of that culture I, I i mean i'm not saying it's good or bad i mean i am but i'm gonna put a caveat in there uh, <laughs> but it, i i do wonder how this would read in in somebody you know a different situation because when you know i i mentioned it when we were talking to kevin he feels like the villain in the piece and i feel like maybe some of my relatives would read that differently and that's it's kind of interesting to think about it from that perspective yeah i i didn't dig in too much to the reception of the movie when it came out in watching documentaries and stuff, they probably touched on it. The main thing I remember in terms of reactions to the movie is there's an interview with Anthony Schaffer, the writer talking about it, talking about when they screened it for executives and they saw the ending for the first time. Yep. And as they sat there and saw the ending, they just went, wait, so, so that's it. There's no cavalry coming. Bloody hell, that's bleak, isn't it? <laughs> to which he turned to him and went, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> you know, like, Great, isn't it? But I have to imagine that was part of it upon its release, because you have to imagine there were people who were like, you know, very much identified with that character and very much were pulling for him and thought, yeah, his approach is, you know, dead on. Fuck these heathens. And then we're absolutely mortified at the ending. It's also why 
Okay. All right, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> I, I'm just sitting here imagining the four-minute Christian school cut. We're going to get to Chris Furley here in a second, Nick. I'm sorry, but it's... So this is kind of why I don't think the fact that they did a remake of The Wicker Man is the worst idea. What? What? I don't... What? I don't what? think it's a what? good idea. Look. What? I'm not talking about the end product. Like, obviously, the fact that it was done, it's a bad idea. <laughs> we saw not the bees, not the bees. <laughs> I just from a conceptual like I am not saying it's a good idea, but I'm it's one of those things like I've talked before about if you're remaking something and you're transplanting it from one region or one culture to another, specifically, so you know, we all live in Delaware, so we approach in this inherently the idea of if we're remaking something, Hollywood being Hollywood, it's going to get set in America. And the notion to me, just thinking about it, watching this, I was like, you know, if if it was pre Nicolas Cage, <laughs> pre all that, pre <laughs> the Neil Laboot movie, like if I was a writer and someone said, you know, we're thinking about remaking The Wicker Man, my knee jerk would have been, oh fuck that, that's a terrible idea, leave it alone. But there is part of my brain that would have been like taking the idea of a super conservative Christian, you know, a police officer. And putting that person in juxtaposition with a pagan culture, but figuring out a way in, of doing that in America. It was like, how could you make that work? From that standpoint, that exercise is interesting to me as a way to do it. And there are elements, again, from a conceptual level, ignore the, the, the execution, because the execution is not great. Jake, I think just watch the remake as part of the prep for this, so we'll probably touch on it. I don't believe it's even a real movie after watching that shit. I couldn't believe how bad it was. But I do agree with you. Me, me and Hannah watched it, and she's very upset that we did so. <laughs> <laughs> I own it, and I'm not proud of myself. I think I bought it because there's a riff tracks for it, I think is why I got it. but I, w- I was glad I watched it, because it's one of those movies where you can tell somebody it's bad, and they can believe that it's bad. But they ain't gonna understand you how bad it, until you yeah. watch it. It's like House of the Dead. Like, yeah, you know it's bad, but you don't know it's bad, bad. It, it is a hundred percent pointless. Nothing in that movie happens that matters. Not a damn thing. Like when you see all those super clips of Nicolas Cage, like Kevin talked about, someone made a supercut of all the goofy bits. And when you see something like that, like if you were to see that first, you would think, "All right, this is ridiculous." But I'm sure in context, it's not as bad as it seems. That's the rare movie when, when you see it in context, it is every bit as bad as seeing it devoid of context. Yep. It's fascinating in that regard. But I think there are a handful of ideas in there that I think from a conceptual level are good. Not in terms of how they rework the overall plot, but just bits and pieces about how they tried to to set it in America. But we'll, we'll get it because I'm sure we'll do it I don't it think eventually. an island off Seattle was their best bet. <laughs> is that where it is? I can't remember where it's supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, I think it's either it's it's off Seattle or it's off Portland. It's it's in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't I don't want to go off on it too much because again, we're probably gonna do it someday. But that was something that occurred to me watching this. It was like, you know, I I know this is an unpopular opinion, but it's like if someone had offered me that as a gig, it would have been like, Yeah, I'd take a shot at it. Like I said, do I think they should have done it? No, like I think the risk reward on on remaking the the wicker man is much higher risk than reward but there is a window of reward potentially look 
I think it's perfectly fine to, to, I mean, you know, we live in a culture of remakes that, you know, this is not so sacred that you can't do a remake. They just, I mean, they, they fucked it up beyond all recognition, but mm-hmm. like conceptually, it's not terrible to, to give it a try. I mean, it's, it's not all that different from like a, a Texan visiting Montreal, man, just film that and you got basically the same thing. But I, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I would like to see a remake of it done. I, I don't. I mean, well. I don't know who. I don't. But yeah, well, but I like. I don't even know who I would get to do it. It's one of the rare films where I don't think Flanagan is the guy. Who, wait, you need the guy who did who Midsummer. The, no, 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 no. You need the <laughs> the guy who already remade the Wicker. Already remade it. Yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you, need, you need. You need what's his name? The the. You can do it. The South Park guys. Oh my God, Trey, Trey Parker. Parker. Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Oh my God. Oh, that could be fun. <laughs> that could be a lot of fun <laughs> and normally i don't like their stuff but for whatever reason like, because they did the mormon musical right the book of mormon <laughs> that was wonderful and cannibal the musical and cannibal both the musical. are so, wonderful which might come up because that's a trauma film <laughs> yeah because it kind of feels like that's the sensibility i would approach a remake to this with fascinating fascinating interesting interesting huh huh because when you think about how absurd this film is, you know, just all the different imagery, the things he comes across, it's it's basically, you know, it's a borderline Monty Python skit half the time. I don't mean that as in any kind of insult. I, I really did love this film. No, no, no. Yeah. But I, I think that's the sensibility I would go for if I was remaking it in America, because it's got to be somebody who just fucking loathes America to, to make it, <laughs> but also sees the humor and all of that. And I think right. cause you, if you get somebody who does it straight, you end up. With Nicolas Cage and Bees. Or the original again. But if you get somebody who, who really gets the inherent humor in it and attacks it that way, then I think you've got you've got something on your hands. But that's that's I mean, I'd have to think about it, but just off the cuff, that's who I would give it to. It, it's funny, it's so somewhat related. And did did either of you actually watch Wicker Tree? No. No. Okay. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the Wicker Tree is based on a novel that Robin Hardy wrote called Cowboys for Christ. <laughs> which is a much more apt title. There is a wicker tree in the wicker tree, um, which looks really awesome. When when it does show up, it's a really nifty prop. But the crux of it is, as the title pl- is, it's two like cowboy diehard Christians from Texas who go on missionary work in Scotland, to which the movie made me laugh like two minutes in because they show them at a Sunday church service and the minister's up there in a cowboy hat and goes, well, our two you know young lovers, because it's a the couple they're engaged, they've got promise rings and shit. And it's like, our two couples are going out and they're going to bring religion to the heathens of Scotland. (laughs) (sighs) I was already done. And the movies, Robin Hardy is deliberately leaning into the comic absurdity of it, even more so than the comic absurdity of Wicker Man and playing up how ridiculous these characters are. But it goes too far in Wicker Tree. And also there's no real, there's no Edward Woodward because you have these protagonists who are even more absurd than the denizens of the area that they're visiting so in that way it's kind of an inversion of where they're more ridiculous and the residents of i forget what the place is it's what is ostensibly summer isle but it's not where they're more just you know they're still silly and still overwrought but a little bit more overtly sinister so anyway another interesting way of playing on those ideas if we i'd be happy to talk wicked trail on this pod too god help us if we do both that and the remake <laughs> Interesting stuff to think about. So sorry for that tangent. Short version, Edward Woodward rocks. 
I love tangents. <laughs> That's how we got onto that, wasn't it? Edward Ruger. Yes, yeah. it was. Yes, it was. Real quick, one last thing from that conversation we just had. Uh, Han and I were talking today about this movie again because, first off, it sticks with you. Yeah, yeah. Just for anybody listening who hasn't seen this, this movie sticks with you, and it comes back. There's always interesting questions, and it's it's really well done. All that being said, so he is, depending upon which side you choose, either a Christian martyr, and therefore like risen above in the ranks as such in his belief and faith, or the perfect sacrifice, which means he will also be risen above in the energies and powers I'll be that, you know, he is, he's become one with God for the moment to help, you know, give them what they need in the moment. Yeah. And so a lot of people like to think of this either, you know, one way or the other, which belief is right. And I was curious, I was like, well, what if both are right? What if there's the Christian God and the pagan guys? This guy's just kind of like kicking the doors of the afterlife down. Boom. <laughs> like, where's my seat? You know, he's just the head of every feast, you know? <laughs> he's got the, the afterlife penthouse. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, exactly. Just... You know, who's a badass? I'm a badass. <laughs> so long as either party or both parties are right, he's set. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> if they're both wrong, he's just a briquette with a bad day. Yeah, if you're an atheist watching this, he's, he's there's really, a whole host of atheists watching this movie going, oh, he sucks. sucks for everybody. He died for nothing and there's no fucking apples coming next year. Everyone's going to have to really go sparingly on that one gourd they got in the fucking harvest last year. I just, I, right, wrong, martyr, not martyr. I'm still going in the other room when the chick is banging on the wall at night in heat. <laughs> That's an, you got to give it to Edward Woodward on that as, as an example of that. The man has to basically play a Tex Avery cartoon. And that's a little like, oh, I'm going to have I'm going to have And like, like if you're writing down, like, you know, he's up sweating, like pawing at the wall and, and making that convincing where, again, you actually you know, have like some degree of like, this is just fucking ridiculous. He plays it in a way where it's like, you know, yeah, it works for his character. And in his defense, I mean, he is engaged. Yeah. You know, him being engaged and not sleeping with the woman next door is, you know, that's, that's good. Yeah. Like at least in that's in a lot of those senses, he's not a hypocrite for all no, of his he's not. various flaws. Hypocrisy is not my, he's, he's an asshole, but yes, he's, 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 a, he's a, a raging hypocrite. asshole. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, his fiance gets the news and is like, "Oh, thank God!" and is down at the pub in five minutes. Oh dear God! <laughs> As everyone's saying, "The landlord's daughter." <laughs> <laughs> that scene just blew my fucking mind. Like, I still kind of didn't have any idea what I was in for, and then they start singing that song, and I'm like, "Hold up, hold up! What what's happening?" That's where you start getting Dutch angles and sh- these like close up Dutch angles and shit. And it's like, whoa. That's it's very one of those where you you know because it starts with him flying his little jet over the Kerrang and you know the Isle of Sky and like it's beautiful and then you get there and I'm like what the who what where what what's going on what movie am I watching because that was that was when I discovered that this movie was absolutely not what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Why are people fucking on the lawn? Why not? <laughs> Why aren't they in more movies? <laughs> well, I love in that bit too that they do that freeze frame when he first sees the couple. Yes, like fucking, and and they just outright freeze the image while the score continues. What's the moment is burned in his brain? <laughs> it's like he like you turn the porch light on and there's like a possum, like mid undulation. Like <laughs> if we don't move, he'll go away. <laughs> And then you see there's like eight of them. I'm like, holy shit. Best island ever. Getting back on track. Good luck with that. I got three more actors to talk about. 
Lord Summerisle is played by Christopher fucking Lee. Yes. Doing his best Roger Daltrey. I know. <laughs> Who you might know from The Corpse Bride, Gremlins 2, Howling 2, The Creeping Flesh, Horror Express, The House That Dripped Blood, or multiple iterations of Count Dracula. The man's a legend. God bless him. What did you just throw fucking darts to get that list? No! It's <laughs> <laughs> good shit, man. Back up. <laughs> I just, you know, I think of Christopher Lee. My first thought is not Gremlins 2. Oh, he's amazing oh, in that. Be. Are you kidding he's me? Great. He's fantastic in Gremlins 2. Awesome I'm not too. saying he's not. I'm just saying it's not my go-to Christopher Lee. Yeah, but we already know you don't like Joy. <laughs> I just had a little like about titty musicals and fucking on the lawn. I don't like Joy. <laughs> I'm not the one licking the wall, buddy. I'm the one getting the key to the other room. I, I will throw out one that you missed. Um, well, not missed. One. You can throw out 800 that he missed. The only one I'll mention is he did a movie for, I believe it was for Canon, <laughs> called The Return of Captain Invincible with Alan Arkin. Oh, yeah. Yes, which I will only mention because if folks haven't seen it, so one of the highlights of this movie, of The Wicker Man, is you get to hear Christopher Lee sing. You know, singing the bit where he gets all dressed up and he's you know at the piano at the fireplace and stuff. And it's, it's, it's always fun. I mean, he recorded a heavy metal album. It's yeah. always fun getting to hear Christopher Lee sing. In The Return of Captain Invincible, he is the villain, and the lead character is a recovering alcoholic, and the climax of the film is Christopher Lee's character tempting him with a fully stocked bar to a song called Name Your Poison. And obviously not making light of alcoholism, it's just it's the setup. It, it, it's a pretty crude movie. It's a canon movie from like 87 or whereabouts. But the whole song, though, is Christopher Lee singing a song that is written by Richard O'Brien from nice. Rocky Horror Picture Show. He he wrote, I think he wrote a couple songs for it, but he certainly wrote this one. So it's, you get to hear Christopher Lee singing, and all the lyrics are, you know, have a reference to drinks in them, you know, because I got some economic hocks, a gin and tonic on the rocks. When angels fear to tread, I say, choose your booze, let's hit the red eye. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't name your poison, I get that song stuck in my head like once a week. So. <laughs> Hey, he did the, the voice of death and uh, a bunch of the, the all the animated uh, Discworld, Discworld stuff movies. Yeah, that's awesome. He's got the voice for it, man. Yeah, he's got the voice for it. So the librarian is played by Ingrid Pitt, mm -hmm. who has been known in such things as Countess Dracula. Yeah, we watched that together. Yes, we did. The Vampire Lovers, Underworld, Thriller and The House That Drip Blood. It's funny, we were just, that's the Clyde Barker underworld, which we were just talking about in our yep, yep, yep. Lord of Illusions episode with Dwayne Straczynski. Go check that out, folks, if you haven't heard that one. That was a good episode. Dwayne's awesome, and that was a really fun episode. But, yeah, Underworld's a weird-ass movie. Yeah, Ingrid Pitt, though, has, yeah, the movie she was in, yeah, she was in some really memorable stuff. Well, she's really made the rounds in um, a bunch of Hammer Horror films for a while there. So she was very popular. And the last person I'd like to bring up is the old gardener or gravedigger, uh, who is played by Aubrey Morris. You might be able to find in such things as Life Force, Yay! Necessary Evil, Legend of the Mummy, Bordello of Blood, Aww. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, and Blood Beast from Outer Space. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of a theme there. Yeah. I always enjoyed him. <laughs> he's he's always just so like, 
I'm so happy to be here. You know, it's just, that's the whole attitude he's got on him at all times. He's absolutely my favorite dude in that village. Minister. <laughs> he's just awesome. <laughs> Minister, he says. Like I mentioned, he's kind of, because he's so excitable, like we mentioned in the chat with Kevin, it's like he ends up being kind of the most overtly creepy because he's so about yep, it. Like, yep. this dude feels like he came off an argento movie <laughs> yeah he does <laughs> he, he inspired me to look at the difference between a rabbit and a hare because i didn't know there was a difference there was a big difference there is mostly size but there you go very much size man i didn't know Fuck, i know about rabbits. i didn't know yeah yeah <laughs> and that's it that's what i got no. awesome no thank you for doing that rundown nick that was awesome my pleasure just every, I, I mean, everybody in this is just a lot of fun. I guess Edward Woods isn't fun per se. But <laughs> well, no, but he's clearly so much of the opposite of fun. But he's clearly bringing his all too, though. Oh yeah, yeah. no, he's great. I'm just saying he's not the first person you're inviting to a party from. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no. But but like I said, it's him being the straight man ostensibly for all this, and and him being incredulous in that way where, like I said, it's not just you know, stock anger where it's, you know, it's, eventually it boils over. Like he also has a great delivery of the introduction to summer. I and summer. I was talking about, you know, parthenogenesis where again, he just said, Oh, what is this? That incredulous, like fuck off delivery. That scene, Nick, you talking about with, with you and Hannah talking about how memorable the movie is. And it certainly is a thoroughly memorable film. And there's a lot that stays with you, but the, the two main things that stuck with me ever since the first time I saw this one is obviously the finale. Clearly. But the other one is in the scene where he meets Summer Isle, where Howie and Summer Isle meet. Yes. And is, I mean, the whole scene's great, but is, is the dialogue exchange where, you know, Howie is criticizing their pagan religions and whatnot. And he says, him, what about, you know, I, I forget his exact lead in, you know, but what about our good Lord, Jesus Christ? And Christopher Lee has the comeback, which is. He blew it. <laughs> Well, even before that, he has the green line. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> but yeah. even before that, he has where where he's, you know, Edward Woodward says, what about our good Lord Jesus Christ? And Summer Isle's response is one of my favorite dialogue bits of any film. And I'm, I don't have it in front of me, so I might get the wording a little off. But it's, you know, he himself born to a virgin, impregnated, I believe, by a ghost. And then that long pause, and then deuce it down, Sergeant. Shocks are so much better absorbed when the knees are bent. Yes, just, yes. It is like my favorite one, two... That particularly the line, you know, born to a virgin, impregnated by a ghost, as I recall. Oh, that's such a good line. I like the other, like, he had his chance. And in your parlance, blew it. <laughs> it's so perfect. Uh, their, their banter back and forth is just like, ah, oh, it, it's the heart of it. I, I love it. And it is by far, like, maybe the second best part of the film. You're right. He brought you up to be a pagan, but not a hope, an unenlightened one. <laughs> So, yeah, all right. I, I want to double back on to the the hot fuzz connection a little bit. Mm, go for it. Uh, I, you know, and I, I bring this up because like I I was looking for the community connection. I found it through Hot Fuzz because I remembered he was, of course, in that. And I hadn't put those two things together until I was typing up the, you know, my notes the the community connection. It was like, hey, <laughs> hey. Wait a minute. Now you think different of the ending of Hot Fuzz, don't you? On his final line <laughs> in Hot no. Fuzz. Oh, God. <laughs> I think it's, oh, God, no. It's it's not yeah. like quite the line from the Wicker Man, but that's where they took it from. You know, because I, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Hot Fuzz. I'm a huge fan of all of the movies and Simon Pegg and pretty much anything Edgar Wright's ever done. 
And it just never occurred to me until that moment. And then it was just, I was literally dumbstruck mm-hmm. when I started to think about it. And then I was like, well, I clearly can't be the only one who thought that. And I, I was not, as it turns out. But I, I want to read a little snippet from an interview. This is from actually the press tour for Hot Fuzz. It's from uh, Stop Smiling. This is from April 25th, 2007. The interview was done by um, somebody named Rusty Nails. It starts with the, you know, the, the interviewer. It seems that Hot Fuzz pays tribute to Robin Hardy's classic 1972 film horror film, Wicker Man, one of the greatest horror films of all time. Edgar Wright. Absolutely. That's great you got that. That's one of the only films that really shows English cops at all. Really, it's one of the only films that really portrayed an English policeman in the last 30 years. England has a glut of gangster films, and we were just so sick of seeing gangster films, we figured it was time to make the second film about an English cop in 30 years. (laughs) Simon Pegg. We watched 138 action films, and Wicker Man was the first film we put in the DVD player. Mm -hmm. Wicker Man is a fantastic film, with so much going on in it. One of the greats. It's a bit of a curio and a brilliant movie. It's very lyrical and music in a way. There's a wonderful central performance by Edward Woodward, who is the grandfather of Nicholas Angel. Angel is the fastidious, upright, absolutely by the book, humorous, blowhard, spoil sport almost. Yep. Nick Frost. Unfortunately, they made that dreadful remake of Wicker Man. Hopefully, people will get around to seeing the original. Ed, you're right. What's interesting about Woodward's character is that he's the villain in the film. That's the thing that the remake completely fucking missed the point of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what we loved about the original Wicker Man, and this is true to some extent in Hot Fuzz, is that the cult. They're kind of in the right. Within their religion, they are entirely justified as far as they're concerned. They aren't portrayed as particularly evil, even though it's the quintessentially creepy village film. From their point of view, they're right, and Edward Woodward is wrong. And he dies for that. I love that about the original Wicker Man. But there are many things to love about Wicker Man. It's a film that seems to have had many lives and hopefully will continue to do so. And I I was just a bit floored that, you know, the, the 138 action films and Wicker Man. But if you look at Hot Fuzz, that shit is basically a complete remake of Wicker Man, even more yeah. so than than Midsummer. Just strip the religious element of yep. it out. But yeah, it's structurally, yeah. it's the same thing. Goes to a place everyone is eerily pleasant. Turns out they're all in on this. Like literally, everybody else in town is in on this secret the plot greater good. that only the protagonist is not privy to. Yeah. He, he makes the one point that I was talking about today that it really makes it truly creepy is that at the heart of this town, they are not actually malevolent. No, that's that's one of the keys for it to be successful in, in talking yes. about... Well, except for the child sacrifice. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> just the cost of doing business, right? No, don't you understand? They avoided the child sacrifice. They did this all year. of this crap it, to it him to the avoid table, it. But it. They was... avoided it this year. <laughs> it wasn't off the table, as you said. <laughs> he even says it like, you know, children are, are good... But a virgin cop, that's the best. That's the good shit, man. We're getting the, those big fucking apples from that shit. <laughs> I mentioned briefly in the chat with Kevin, like, Summer Isle has a line in the script where he explicitly says, you know, I, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to sacrifice one of our own if I can't help it. And we, we were just talking about Edward Woodward and how having, like, yeah, he's the villain. He needs to be this imperious asshole. But at least giving him some semblance of empathy and some degree of nuance makes that ending work so much more. Conversely, yep. It's, you know, the reverse for the town, which is it, yep. if their sincerity is an utter facade, well, then it it becomes a completely different kind of movie yep. and it, where it's you know still in, in this insidious plot. But that ending takes on a whole nother tone. But in fact, their sentiments are 
absolutely sincere. Yep. And, you know, they have artifice. You know, there is this facade that they are putting on. Again, in the words of Hot Fuzz, for the greater good. For the greater good. <laughs> Stop doing that. But in and of themselves, like, if if he had showed up on May 2nd, you know, instead of a couple of days before May, it's it would have been ostensibly the same. Like, they, their demeanor is genuine. Yep. At least, you know, my read on it is, you know, their demeanor is absolutely genuine. It's just simply the, the mechanics necessary to initiate the full plot you know and and lead him on this grand chase that's the only bit that is artifice that is you know them putting on a a fake everything else as far as their demeanor is absolutely sincere and that's one of the things that makes it so effective including their talk about how they don't actually believe in death right you know they believe that you know you just transition into the next part of you know your existence within the community within existence so to them they're not even doing necessarily wrong by him other than pushing him forward a bit early and that's it you know <laughs> so it's, it's not this grandiose crime to them to them they're just you know honestly giving him a blessing and that makes it so much worse when they're all just smiling and singing and like going hey good for you and he's like god damn you <laughs> yeah when they're singing it's not fuck you asshole there's you know there's he's very much you know damn you, you know, that's that's his job when they're singing again it's it's sincere. That's it's celebratory, but not like yep. yeah, we got this motherfucker. Doesn't make it right, but it's sincere. No, yeah, it's none of it is is right, but but it is, <laughs> it's that element of nuance on both elements of it that make the movie really interesting. Like if it had just been you know they pull the you know the mask comes off at the end and it's ah we were fucking with you the whole time. It's so effective, but it's not as effective, yep. and it's not as interesting, and it's not as you know it's part of what makes the movie work is that like you said it's there's a sense of dread but it's dread through people being really pleasant yep <laughs> and and when you get to the fact that that's n- in the end and you find out that that's not a facade that there there are elements of what they're doing the facade but that sentiment that creepy overly nice stuff that's just that's absolutely sincere it just compounds it yep it's- this is why as a new englander i don't like going to the midwest <laughs> 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 no offense to any of our listeners in the midwest <laughs> Or New England, depending on how you take that. Just stick to the coast, man. That's me. I just stick to the coast. <laughs> We've had a bunch of Midwest listens this week. Jake, don't make me cut this bit out. <laughs> no, hey, look, it's nothing wrong with it. Being, being nice no, no, and no, sincere is a good thing. I just don't deal with it well because I'm broken. <laughs> Not insulting them. I just, I you know, putting myself in the, like, if I got to that island, man, this is a whole different movie. Jake shows up late, sleeps with the barman. I tell you what, I'm making a break for it at the end, too. Like, fuck it. I'll go swimming. Let's see what happens. <laughs> oh, when he's on the, the cliffs, yeah, there's no place you can. Take your chances, baby. My choices are try and swim or burn alive. Fuck you, dog. Let's go see Aquaman. I really like this movie. I enjoyed it. It's quality. I, I think it's highly interesting. I loved it. And I think everybody should watch it. Jake, where do you stand on it? Because we're so Nick and I had seen it before, but now you're coming into seeing it from you knew the at least vaguely the reputation of this film. Like you quoted in our chat with Kevin that it was the Citizen Kane of horror. You had probably heard that at some point yeah. previously. You know, the movie certainly has a reputation. So I was curious how it lived up to it for you. I, I really liked it. Awesome. I, like I, I really enjoyed it. It was I wouldn't say it met my expectations because my expectations were for a completely different fucking movie than what this is <laughs> so like they're not even relevant to the discussion because it's just not what i thought it was like i in my head this was more like um kill list 
mm. than what it actually is. Okay. <laughs> and much as I like Kill List, I like this more, I would say. But it's there is a special feature on the Blu-ray for one of the Blu-ray editions for Wicker Man. It's the DVD I got from in the mail from Netflix for it. So in the special feature on the Blu-ray, Ben Wheatley's one of the guys who's interviewed, the guy who wrote and directed Kill List. And one of the things he says outright, he goes, I don't know about everyone else. I don't know if this makes me weird, but I'm really rooting against the cop in that movie. Like, I think they'll like, fuck yeah, burn him. You know, it's, it's not verbatim what he says, but he talked about how he's explicitly rooting for the people of Summer Isle. I, that's how I found myself. I was rooting for the people of Summer Isle because, I mean, look, if nothing else, they're just going to be more interesting than him at a dinner party. And, you know, if all there, if all there is to eat is apples... There better be good conversation, and he's not providing that. They've got canned potatoes. You love canned potatoes. I do like canned potatoes. In fact, I've bought British canned potatoes, and they're just as good. Yeah, I look, I, I really like this movie. I, I As far as like the Citizen Kane of horror movies, I don't know. Sure, maybe. Like I wouldn't say it's the greatest horror film I've ever seen. Uh, it's almost barely a horror film, but... It's a slow burn. Christopher Lee, based on interviews, Christopher Lee didn't think it was. I think Robin Hardy maybe dismissed it as that. I don't. I can't quite remember. A lot of folks we were involved in it and said, "Well, it's not really a horror film," but I think it is absolutely. But it's... I, yeah, I, I think it qualifies as a horror film for sure. It's just it's it's right on that edge. Like if if I were to try and talk somebody who doesn't like horror films into seeing it, I would just simply not tell them it's a horror film, and I don't think they'd be mad at me at the end. Well, at least for that reason. <laughs> Not for that. but no I, I i i'll admit when we when we kind of do these all-time classics i'm always a little trepidatious going into them a because you know i have a tendency to be opinionated and maybe a little grumpy about horror films what huh? what who are you and what have you done with jacob i don't understand but i always want to enjoy stuff so when it when it actually hits like it's it's I really, really, maybe I like it a little bit more because I, I know when we record the podcast, I'm not going to get yelled at for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eric's not going to you know knock over his mic and walk away. <laughs> that was the best. It don't happen once. <laughs> once so far. I sound like the Goonies. It don't happen once. Uh, maybe twice. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's great. It's it's really it's an important part of the canon. I would say I'm glad to have seen it. I'm thrilled we got to talk to one of its biggest fans for sure but yeah i it, it's as good as the remake is bad that's how i would describe yeah it. good way of putting it <laughs> and you had to like the music element of it it's a titty musical what's not to like man we need more of even those. aside from the first part of that equation just the music like it's the vein of folk music that it implements yeah I, oh, when yeah. i was watching this i was like jake's really gonna dig the soundtrack for sure. Yeah, I liked it. And I do. T I really like the, the one song I hate for whatever reason, the corn rig song that they play over the opening credits. I hate that. Tune. It's not great. I hate that song. <laughs> Is it? It's just. The, the, I liked it. You would. Fuck you, too. It's that sort of the way the melody flows is just one of those. Like, ah. I mean, Paul Giovanni can sing. The dude's got pipes. But that one song I hate. But it, I liked it. But most of the songs in I like, but more so I, I just love again. It's. It's this pleasant thing that contributes again to this continuous escalation of constant dread. But again, in a weird, pleasant way, it's not like one of the things that I thought was interesting was, you know, most of the songs are there's some that are kind of rapid and upbeat that are, you know, it, particularly the, the one that stuck in my mind after seeing it the first time was the Maypole song. That one got one of the other things that I took away was on that French was a nest in that nest. Was that, was a fine. Bird. that one just gets stuck in your head. But that that Maypole scene is probably for my money, the most sinister scene in the entire film. 
It's yeah, it's up there. I wouldn't say like that much in this movie creeped me out, but that scene creeped me out. In the summer, all summer, like there was there was some weird village of the damned musical. Just it was just enough off kilter to make me uncomfortable watching it. You know, and a lot in this film is certainly off kilter, but that more than almost anything else was the one that just like, what the fuck is what what no man that ain't right. Yeah, and then capped off at him going in the classroom and you get the beetle inside the desk, which yeah. is another great reveal. The beetle is so good, and then the version of that in the remake is so fucking dumb. I don't even remember it. So I'll <laughs> the crow in the desk. Oh, I think, yeah, I kind of remember. Okay, but I love the just it's everything is so. Here's where when you're talking about the the scene where Howie is tempted to go into Britt Eklund's room, you know, Willa McGregor. When she's singing and the whole fact that that song is it's not a, you know, it's this overtly sexual song is supposed to be the seductive thing, but it's not overtly. It's this slow and it, and so sung so gently that it has this nice slow and this sensuous approach. It's not percussive. And like most of the things like there, there is an element of of light percussion to it, particularly with the shots of her dancing and whatnot. But it's mainly it's it's just this really slow, sensuous thing. What I thought was interesting is that there's so little percussion in a lot of it. And the percussion ends up then being used for dread again, because when you actually get percussion is when you get to the climax and they're doing the actual parade, even before you know, when Howie's still dressed as the fool. And it's all these drum beats, particularly when they're doing the sword sequence with the cross swords and the beheading stuff. Yeah. And each time they do that, it's accompanied by a drum beat. And, you know, the drum beats as he approaches the Wickerman, all this stuff. So all of a sudden at the end, drums become specifically terror. That's the synonymous music. And that was a lesson James Wan learned. <sighs> Another thing I want to talk about on this movie was <laughs> <laughs> costume design. Something I, I really want to dig into at some point. I didn't have a chance to re dig into it, but I wanted to get into the costume stuff. Like I imagined for is this movie was made again for a purportedly very little money. So I imagine a lot of it is like, you know, we bought a cop costume, everyone else wear what you own. But I was so struck particularly by, I wanted to go through and really look at how they use the color red specifically of how, you know, the color red keeps coming up. You know, the bartender has a red neckerchief. Summer Isle has this red pocket square. The fool's outfit is red and white. And I, I wanted to go through and look at it more. And then I got so struck at Summer Isle in that final sequence where he's wearing the yellow turtleneck bright yellow turtleneck under his coat which a it is i think kevin brought this up too in his his podcast episode he did with the, the hammer podcast which is what it, it if you think about it like how he's the one person somewhere who changed outfits and the amount of time it took you know for howie to get through the cave and comes up so you just wanted like could we have started the scene cut to the outside like 30 seconds earlier you just see like you know summer isle who's just hauled ass from one end of the island to the other <laughs> ripping his costume off taking his makeup off putting on this turtleneck and he's just standing there waiting for him to merge going which <laughs> 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 is hard to do with a turtleneck oh they're coming okay <clears throat> you did it beautifully <laughs> <laughs> like he's really trying to hold in his you, you did it beautifully fuck <laughs> <laughs> he had to really because everyone else just shows up in the shit they're already wearing but it struck me at the end, which is where he's got there in a yellow turtleneck and he always has this red pocket square and they keep showing one of the recurring images of the movie is they keep doing these crash zooms on, I believe they're called 
either wheat weavers or corn dollies. But like these woven from either corn husks or wheat. And they're apparently like a... I've only ever heard corn dolly. Yeah, and I guess it's a pagan thing, I guess, or sort of like a harvest thing. And and you see them, like there's one hung up in the school. I think there's one hung up at the bar, I forget also. The, the, the camera closes in on them specifically. So I was wondering, like, I was like, he always has this red pocket square. When I saw him wearing that yellow turtleneck in the final scene, I was like, wait, is he supposed to be, like, essentially, visually a corn dolly slash wheat weaver at that point with this bright yellow? Because they all have red bows on them. Yeah. All the, the corn dollies, they're all wheat corn, but they all have this little red ribbon on the top. And he and then is, like, you know, yellow torso with a red pocket square. So I'm, I'm curious about, like, how much did or didn't go into the costume design stuff. So I'd be interested in going into That's that. question. On the ending, I just, like I mentioned in the chat with Kevin, I do have one script bit I want to read. It is a little long, but I'm only reading the one. We brought up in the chat with Kevin talking about like the amount of planning that had to go into all the stuff they're doing on this island. And I talked about how in the original script, there is a scene where Lord Summerisle outlines everything. And I, I want to read this just so you have an idea of exactly what I'm talking about and how this would have played out. So the, the part where I'm about to pick up is the bit where Summer Isle says, you know, you're exactly the right kind of sacrifice. This is as Howie has emerged from the cave mouth and he's in the fool costume. And Howie's like, you know, right kind of sacrifice. What are you talking about? And then the three women who are there are like, you know, oh, you had to be, you know, the hand of a king. You had to be the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and they each have a line talking about how he fits the criteria. Originally, that was all Summer Isle. So, all right, there's a little long. So Howie says, horrified, the right kind of adult, Lord Summer Isle. Yes. What we needed was a stranger who would come here of his own free will, who would come here with the power of the king, as you have such power over this island by representing its secular law, who would come here as a virgin, as incredibly it seems you still are, <laughs> and who would come here as a fool. Howie, a fool? Miss Rosenwillow come forward and help Howie out of his punch costume. He stands before them naked. As Lord Summerisle continues to talk, they pour clear water from wooden buckets over him and dry him gently with fluffy white towels as if he were a little boy. They are punctiliously gentle with him, and after they've washed him, they ritually anoint his skin with oil, presenting it to him in cupped hands before rubbing it on his chest and back and thighs. In the finished film, it looks like they just dab like French's mustard on his chest and four spots, but Howie accepts their favors with the same shocked gravity as he accords Lord Summerisle. Lord Summerisle. Yes, Punch is a fool. One of the great fool victims of history, in fact. I'm sorry I had to chide you so publicly for your performance of the role in the procession, but it was spectacularly lethargic. After all, his part is in all that arduous to play these days. So he even shits on his performance as the fool in the parade again. Lord <laughs> Summerall picks up from the top half the punch costume from the ground where the women dropped it, holding it by the hump. So this is Summerall holding the costume up. As you see, he's got his padded hump to protect him from the traditional scourging of the multitude. And in the shadow of his death, he is always offered the most sumptuous woman. We offered you Miss Willow McGregor, who we thought to be the most delectable of ladies, but in defense of your virginity, you rejected her, as we hoped you would. For I need hardly add that that restraint makes your sacrifice doubly acceptable to the gods. You look dumbfounded, Sergeant, but surely even as a practicing Christian you must know that the outstanding function of the fool in folklore is to undergo death and revival. Howie. Death? Revival? Lord Summerisle drops the costume on the ground. Lord Summerisle. Exactly. Proceedings today have thus far been symbolic, but now I am afraid that nature has to change. If my people are not going to go hungry next year, your death 
has to be a reality. The revival, of course, will not be yours, but will, hopefully, be in the field of horticulture. Howie shakes his head in bewilderment, as if he can't believe his senses. Lord Summerisle. You still seem puzzled, and that's a pity. You should be clear-headed and joyous, taking comfort in the fact that even though we've dressed you as a fool, you do die as our king. Howie. You dress me as a fool, Lord Summerisle. We had to. It's traditional. The thought is, you see, that only a fool would wish to be king for a day. Howie. You didn't dress me as anything. I took that punch costume from McGregor. Lord Summerisle. You know, if you weren't in something of a state of shock, I'd be forced to conclude that you are a pretty dull-witted detective. You were allowed to take the costume away from McGregor, having previously been made aware of its existence both in the courtyard of the Green Man, to which you were led by the hobby horse galloping through the empty town, and by McGregor himself, whispering outside your bedroom door that he was about to put it on. We set that up for you with great care, just as, as I've already explained to you, we have set up everything else on this island that has happened to you since you arrived on this island. We spared no effort to outrage your Christian sensibilities and have used every device of evasion and irritation to make you believe that the worst kind of foul play was being concealed from you and that we earnestly desired you to leave here, when in fact the very reverse was the case. After much prompting, you finally did understand that a blood sacrifice was to be made today. What, of course, you failed to guess was that you yourself were going to provide the willing, virgin, stranger, king-like fool victim that we all so desperately require. But here you are, you see, in all those roles. Howie, half to himself. So that's why my seaplane was disabled. Lord Summerisle. Of course! And later this evening we will sink it, so it will be assumed on the mainland that it crashed and that you went down with her. Howie. My God, what a fool I've been to be taken in by a child. Lord Summerisle. The child was but the tip of the iceberg, the part that showed. Do not reproach yourself. There was no way you could have known. I will not ask you to forgive us for manipulating you so shamefully, but only urge you to try and comprehend that men with your attributes are rare, and we had to have you. You must come now. It is time. And he says, everyone comes up to lead him to the wicked man, and then Lord Summerhouse says, there's no way out. Go with dignity. And from there, everything plays out basically as it was in script. He goes over absolutely every detail of this. So it's basically the bit of, of you know, Howie being prepped for the Wicker Man plays out in real time, whereas we get kind of a truncated bit of people singing. But still, it seems like it only takes about a minute, whereas this would be like, how long did that take me to read? Like six minutes? <laughs> and it's explaining goddamn everything. It practically ends with, and I would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been, Wait a minute. I am getting away with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's such Scooby-Doo shit. <laughs> it really is. Like, I was just reading the script and to the degree where he's like, well, you see, we did this, this, and this. And then the amount of times he calls him a dumbass to his face. It's like, you seem pretty fucking stupid, so let me dumb this down for you. Please. Dude's about to die. At least we dance around it a little more gently. If you we weren't in a state, I'd love that line. If you we weren't in a state of shock, I'd be forced to conclude you're pretty dim-witted detective <laughs> again i know that was long but it's so oh, bonkers the idea that all of this exposition at the last minute of the film 
I, I would have left it in. Shit, the way he just increasingly <laughs> escalated keeps calling him stupid? Go for it. <laughs> like, how much more exposition could you have gotten? I mean, we're so lucky that you ordered the lamb chops at the Green Man because we found out how you ordered the chicken breast. The chicken had been left at room temperature for far too long. And if you had contracted salmonella, everything would have been fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that's fascinating. I mean, I can see why they cut it, but I, I would have... Shit. Just leave it, just increasingly, like, the level of insults he gets. I mean, dimwitted detective, blithering idiot, you goddamn fool, you know? We get to look, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll say, too, for anyone who hasn't read it, if you're a big Wicker Man fan, the script's not hard to track down, this particular draft of it. Go check it out. There's a shitload of stuff that was cut in terms of there's so much of Howie going about town and talking to people in the investigation of Rowan's disappearance, there's, you know, he talks to the town doctor about how she died. He goes, he talks to the photographer like three times. Uh, I mentioned in the chat with Kevin, like there's a scene where they explain why Lennox, the photographer has a jar of foreskins, you know, just hanging around. He explains exactly what they're used for. And so there's a lot. Famously, there's all these scenes of them talking about, like everyone talks about the movie getting edited out and folks say, you know, there's just too much goddamn talk about apples. All that apple talk is in the original script where, where <laughs> Samurai was holding up apples and he's like, here, taste this one. This is one of your shit-ass domestic apples. Now this motherfucker. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this beautiful vermilion bitch. This is a Samurai apple. <laughs> like, they actually talk about him, like, rubbing it, like, sensuous. Like, ah. it's, you see why this guy, like I mentioned, he has eight by tens of apples in this apartment. It's like, here's a particularly saucy Granny Smith. Whoa. <laughs> I know, I know I do this all the time, but it makes me, you ever see the, the community episode, the Meow Meow Beans one? Yeah, I have seen it. Yeah. Everybody's rating each other. Oh, my Meow Meow Beans. And, and Jeff does that whole performance talking about apples. Sure do love them apples. And everybody goes nuts. <laughs> That's all I can think of right there. I'll have to go rewatch that episode one more time. <laughs> Got any apples up there? You know, it's just, it's just like, it's a running bit on that. Anyway, maybe that could be our community connection. Apples. You can't see it, but Nick just sighed deeply and rolled his eyes. Yep. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for indulging me in that script reading. I know that was love it again. It's, it's... Love it. <laughs> I was literally laughing out loud reading it. It was like, you got to be kidding me. And some of this shit. So, and some of it is legitimately funny, but it's, you know, Anthony Schaffer is such a great writer. Um, you know, anyone who's seen Sleuth, you know, has seen, seen how good he is at having, you know, characters banter back and forth and the way the plots are constructed and whatnot. But this is, it's just summer round, just exposition dumping. But I love it. The only other note I had that I, it was like a bunch of other like bits and pieces I had on the film. The main one I wanted to bring up was, like I was thinking about all the you know the elements of this film where, where it is like one of the best of its you know one of the best daylight horror movies you know one of the best slow burn horrors one of the best killing with kindness kind of horror films and I was like wait is this it's like it's probably also the best burned alive scene in a horror movie which is I know it's a weird niche but I was like it's probably the best it's up there hmm. I was like the devils is up there which I know you guys haven't seen but I was like the devils is a really good if you see the uncommon the devils has a good one and and then I stopped and. Again, I didn't entertain this thought for very long, but while I entertained it, it occurred to me, wait a minute. No, it's not. Pit in the fucking pendulum. Oh, Had the best. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that has a woman turning herself. Yes. Into, for folks who haven't seen it, Stuart Gordon's Pit in the Pendulum has a scene where 
a woman who's been accused of being a witch and who it turns out is actually a witch is about to be burned in a public square. But unfortunately, they leave her next to a barrel of gunpowder. So she's just <laughs> down in handfuls of this shit. So when they actually light her on fire, she turns into a human fragmentation bomb <laughs> and blows up to such a degree that it pelts everyone with shrapnel. So I was like, oh. I love it. So there's one category in which the Wicker Man is is number two at best. (laughs) Hmm. Now I'm going to be thinking about this for a while. (laughs) Burned alive. What are you thinking about? Burning alive scenes in horror movies. And Jen's going to be like, why do I ever ask? (laughs) It wouldn't have come up. I I was thinking of it because I like the devils so much. And the devils are such a memorable one. Now we got to do the movie Spontaneous Combustion. (laughs) Oh, clearly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's the the most recent Halloween remake. That's got a pretty good one. How it ends has a best sub. <laughs> we got to do that movie at some point. I'm not going to spoil it. On most people listening to this have probably seen it, but holy shit, man! Some of this, <laughs> some oh, of the buckle up when we that. do that Halloween trilogy. That is going to be oh, that boy. is going to be an all timer uh, of an episode. Uh, uh. <laughs> that will be three classics. Well, at least two for sure. Those those latter two, which will be interesting because I think our opinions are actually a little bit varied a- across those latter two to to a degree not like wildly but like i know my opinion is wildly different than nick's on the last one <laughs> oh is it but no jake i'm glad you dug this film nick yeah it just I, I had such a blast talking about it with you guys thank you guys so much for doing this and it's so much it's, fun it's nice when these movies live up to expectations again kevin thank you so much thank you thank you kevin that was wonderful we love you absolutely go check out kevin's work if you want to check out us we're going to be updating our link tree so it has updates for all our various social media handles since the social media landscape is ever fluctuating. As of this recording, we have Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter. We have Scary Stuff Podcast on Tumblr, Mastodon, Instagram, and Letterboxd. If you want to follow us on Letterboxd, if nothing else, we update that every time that we put up a new movie. So you can keep up with our episodes that way. And speaking of movies, so we're, we're finishing up Wicker Man now. And the next for us is... um. So what's the next one? Wait. Wait, is it? Is it the Nightmare on Elm Street remake? Yeah. Oh. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Christ. (laughs) You guys are going to need to finish the wrap up. I can't. I got to pray. I got to pray. That was Eric. <laughs> Wishing you a good night. <laughs> I'm Nick Leamy. Oh, it's my shot. <laughs> this is Nick Leamy saying you'll never, simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. Jesus Christ. This is Jake saying, how about them apples? <laughs> good night, folks. Do not deliver me into Platinum Dude's hands. Put me out of mind forever. <laughs> Let me not undergo the real pains of hell, dear God, because I died and shriven. What? 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 What?